Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. The year is 2020. We are officially in season two of the podcast, and we have an awesome episode today. We start out with an update from the Game Changer Cinematic Universe. We've got some feats of strength specifically related to career longevity in a number of sports. We've got some drama related to some doping rumors in the weightlifting world. We've got a Q&A segment where we talk about things like collagen supplementation and muscle hyperplasia in response to training. We've got a research roundup, a coach's corner. We talk a little bit about goal setting and how to program your training during a weight loss phase. And Greg also shares some tips on how to make the perfect homemade caramel. So we've got all that and much, much more. It's a very, very dense episode with a lot of information. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is now season two of the podcast. I am your host, Eric Trexler. And for the first episode of season two, I'm joined by a special temporary guest host named Greg Knuckles. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for joining me. Um, How was your break? It was good. How was yours? It was good. Very restful. Good. Um, Yeah, I enjoyed it. Spent more time in the gym. Sweet. Recovering quite well. Um, Whenever I have spare time, I like to just beat the hell out of myself in the gym senselessly. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I should probably uh, structure this. Nice. Had a couple of those workouts that were just fun and stupid. Mm -hmm. And now uh, making some gains. I feel really good. Good deal, man. Yeah. All right. So uh, season two is here. Uh, Thanks for everyone uh, for your patience over the break. We had to do all that, enjoy the holidays kind of stuff, apologize to our loved ones for ignoring them for the last year, things like that. But we're back with season two, ready to go. Um, as you probably know from last season, at the end, we we mentioned that we're going to be doing every other week here. Um, and then we, for season two, this is going to last us basically until the summer. And then we're going to take a little summer break and then come back with season three. Now, the tone is going to be a little different, I think, in season two. Um, this is something I haven't mentioned yet, but we do record out of Greg's home and you now have me positioned between a middle school geography B plaque and a Japanese sword. So I feel like it kind of feels like a really not subtle display of both intellectual and physical power. And I, it feels like the tone in the room is different. I, 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 <laughs> I feel like you're really jockeying for a full-time position. Well, so it it was mostly as a bit, and then I realized I'm really bad at framing camera shots, so it didn't work out. Uh, But a lot of people have, like, their degrees and, like, certifications and various qualifications hanging up on the wall behind them, like, when they're guests on podcasts and whatnot. Uh, I guess, you know, to establish expertise or potentially just to flex... One time I was on a podcast with Lane Norton, and he just had a bunch of guns hanging behind him, which, (laughs) honestly, cooler. Um, So anyway, I was just going to do this as a joke. Uh, Went home over the holidays, and my parents saved everything from my childhood, and I wanted to find, like, the most random award and, like, recognition plaques that I had from my youth uh, to hang them up behind me. Um Forgot to get a nail to hang them up, but whatever. Uh, so the two I got were a uh, 2003-2004 Middle School Geography Bee Championship plaque uh, and a Basic Computer Literacy Skills uh, plaque. So 
just want people to know that I have those things going for me. Um, and then, yeah, I won a katana in a powerlifting meet one time at, I think that was Raw Unity 1. Um, anyway, it's pretty cool. So Yeah, it's very clear displays of both intellectual and physical power to hopefully solidify your place on the podcast. So we'll, we'll see if that subconsciously gets you a permanent spot someday. I mean, it can't hurt. Can't hurt, that's for sure. One other uh, one other change to the show that people need to be aware of is, like Eric said, we're moving to a once-per-two-week schedule. We're going to take the summer off. Uh, when we come back, there may or may not be uh, a big shift in the focus of this show. Um, so depending how the Democratic presidential primaries go... Our American listeners will know this is election year in the U.S. Uh, For foreign listeners, you very well may know that as well. Um, So early on in primary season, I was supporting someone who I thought had a great chance of winning. He seemed to have a huge organic groundswell of support, and that was Joe Sestak. Uh, Quite frankly, I'm shocked that he has dropped out already, Um, but I've recently gone all in for our girl, Amy Klobuchar, um, I think, you know, I, I think she basically has a coin flips chance of, of taking the primary. And if she does, then when we come back after the summer break, this becomes an Amy Klobuchar political podcast just to promote her candidacy. Yeah. And so I'm not sure where I'm going to fit into that because I choose my I back candidates that I find to be relatable to me. And so you know, I grew up in the Midwest, simple kid. I definitely am going to go with either billionaire Steyer or billionaire Bloomberg or billionaire Trump. It has to be a billionaire that I feel like I can really relate to, you know, somebody that is like me in terms of their general outlook on things. So I've narrowed it down to the billionaires, but I don't know which one yet. So we'll, we'll see where I fall uh, when that comes. Fair enough. Okay. Little update. Um, As listeners know, I have formally checked out of the Game Changers cinematic universe. (laughs) I find it to be wholly uh, disinteresting, Uh, but there is an update. Uh, There's, well, there's many updates. (laughs) Somehow the universe has survived without me. So uh, Dr. Mel Davis has a write-up on on the Renaissance Periodization website. Uh, As you know, I I absolutely refuse to read any more about it, but it, it did seem good. Um, it's got like a billion references and yeah. So I, I think it, they do good work over there. I think she did a really nice job with it, but I, I didn't read it in its entirety because I just didn't want to. I, I'm, I'm, I'm out of game changers. But if you are looking for like a, a good solid look at it, they did it, which is awesome because it means I didn't have to. Now, this is a, a less than two hour movie that spurred a four hour debate uh, which then spurred like the the Joe Rogan podcast, right? Correct. Yeah, which then spurred countless hundred page articles about either the movie or the debate. And now there is uh, <laughs> somebody posted part one of their analysis of the debate, not the movie. <laughs> so part one of their analysis of the debate was eight hours long. <laughs> And they said that the second half was probably going to be another eight hours long. So now we're in the 16-hour analysis range for, again, a film that was less than two hours in length. 
And I think there's only two realistic conclusions for the path we're going down. I, I could see maybe a Ken Burns miniseries. Um, he, you know, he's very famous for his Civil War miniseries. He's done a lot of very thorough miniseries about really heavy topics. So I'm sure Ken Burns, if he spent a good 24 to 28 hours on a miniseries, I think we'd finally un- turn over every rock associated with Game Changers and the debate following it. Also, George Lucas is going to have a lot of time on his hands. The Star Wars thing appears, it sounds like they made the last movie. I don't know. I don't really follow it. I mean, George Lucas sold the franchise. But I mean, so he has he has nothing but time on his hands. Yeah. So he's he should really think about doing another like maybe a nine movie series again. But this one focusing on some of the some of the topics in Game Changers. So that would be maybe a 26 to 28 hour investment. But I think it's going to go one of those two directions. So stay tuned. We'll see what happens. But um, whatever happens, it'll be without me because I'm out. Okay, let's get to business, Greg. We've got important stuff. So first of all, we've got feats of strength. Do you want to share this one or should I? Uh, I mean, we can just swap off, I guess. Cool. You, so you can you can start since you're the one who put this down. Yeah. So I swooped in with the first feat of strength because uh, I thought this was crazy. So Vince Carter. Uh, recently became the first NBA player to play in four different decades, which we, we get a lot of questions on the show about like, you know, hey, I'm, I'm getting into lifting, but I'm kind of like toward the tail end of my physical peak or whatever, you know, any advice for older guys or older women lifting. So I, I thought this was kind of relevant and mainly just insanely impressive. So First of all, I know that there are people who are like, oh, the new decade doesn't really start until 2021. I'm not interested in that discussion at all. Uh, and like, it's kind of dumb to be like, you know, what was your favorite year of the 1980s? Definitely 1990. Yeah, yeah. Like people refer to decades as like 80s, 90s. One thing I'm pretty stoked about is now we're back in the 20s. That's that's a decade that makes sense. So like aughts, fuck that. That's a dumb name. It the is. teens also doesn't roll off the tongue. But we're back in the 20s, baby. It's like the 90s all over again. Definitely. That's, that's a good decade name. And like you said, no one ever says the 20s barring 2020 and 2030. Like that's that's not how people refer to it. For all practical purposes, it's a new decade. Deal with it. Yeah. And you said it, it's like the 90s again and and. Vince Carter, he made his debut in the NBA in 1999. When Vince Carter started playing NBA basketball, I was seven years old, and he still plays. He's lost a step. <laughs> he's he's not he's not winning the dunk contests anymore, bro. He can still throw down. Yes, his, so his I, minutes have been reduced. So. He, he, yeah, he doesn't play the same type of game he used to. Yeah. But there's still so I I follow the NBA pretty closely and there will be clips from time to time of just like, you know, him in the warm up lines or like, you know, after a game or something uh, of just like him throwing down a dunk to, you know, get the crowd going, just do some fan service. Dude can still fucking sky. Yeah. Like it's wild. He does that to when all, all the 50-year-olds in the stands. It reminds them when they were 11 and started watching watching him play. Yeah, I mean, I mean, dude. A so, walk down memory lane. So, like, the thing is, he doesn't have as quick of a first step anymore. And, <laughs> I mean, just because of how old he is, he probably, 
doesn't really feel safe trying to go for like a poster in traffic anymore. Yeah. But I guarantee you, if he gets a juicy fast break, he'll turn back the clock a little bit. Like dude's dude's still an athletic freak. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. It's, it's like, it's just phenomenal to, to have in the NBA. The NBA is a tough game. Oh yeah. It, it, it takes a toll on your body, which is why he's, he's the only one doing this. You know I mean? It, it's really impressive. Now this got us on a little tangent of looking at other people who have had really long careers in, in professional sports. Um, so Tom Brady, Almost did this same four decade stretch, but like I mentioned, Vince Carter played his first game in 1999. Tom Brady started in 2000, so unless he's got another like nine or ten years in him, I don't think he's going to span the decades the same way. But uh, but I mean, he's started basically the same time playing pro football, quarterback, and really only had one year that was really impacted by injury. I mean, he, he got his knee rolled over and, and missed a season with the ACL tear. But uh, he, he's had a remarkable career with longevity, um, probably because he doesn't eat tomatoes. <laughs> we should uh, we should talk about the Tom Brady diet on the podcast at some point. Someday. That was a joke, everybody. He, he follows some weird nutritional practices and stuff like that. Uh, like, honestly, dude, he doesn't eat alliums. He doesn't eat like garlic and onions. If you could tell me, you know, you're going to be arguably the greatest quarterback ever. Uh, not really interested in having that discussion, but it's he's easily in the discussion. I think any everyone would say that. Yeah, you could be arguably the greatest quarterback ever, make like fucking four hundred million dollars over the course of your career, whatever. Like he has, but the catch is you can never eat onions or garlic. I don't know that I would take that deal, <laughs> honestly. Uh, no, it's it's tough. It's it's one of those. Uh really good debates which do you which door do you go through i don't know i'd I'd probably take the tom brady route but but it's at least a good discussion now there are some other people who have if done we're some... ever really dry for content one week <laughs> you know we can have the debate hear yeah. out both sides yeah teach the controversy that that would be an excellent uh, 400 million dollars or garlic yeah that'd be a great debate uh but you found a few other people who had some pretty Pretty impressive careers in terms of longevity. Yeah, so on the NFL side of things, the person who still holds the record for the longest NFL career is George Blanda. Um, He was a quarterback and kicker from 1949 to 1975. I I was honestly a little surprised by this. I thought the longest career was Morton Anderson, um, or one of the Andersons. Like back in the 80s and 90s, there were two really good Anderson kickers. kickers, And I think Morton was the one that played the longest. Um, I really thought he had the longest career. But uh, when looking into this, it was it was Blanda. And just just think about like the time that that spans 1949, which is like barely post-war pre start of Korean War. I feel very American, like dating things based on their proximity to two different wars. But (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) It is what it is. Um, And then ending in 1975. Like, that's crazy. Um, On the baseball side of things, longest career ever, 27 seasons for Nolan Ryan. Uh, Nolan Ryan, man, he he was a different breed. Like, 
his strikeout record, I don't think anyone's ever going to touch it. So he pitched 27 seasons through, I think, seven perfect games or seven no hitters. Uh, and I think the next most by anyone is like three ish. Um, starting pitcher throwing like 102 to 104 mile an hour heat when like, you know, that's basically reserved for closers and no one else. Um but his stri- his career strikeout total was 5714 career strikeouts. The next closest is Randy Johnson, who was also another incredible strikeout artist with great longevity. His strikeout total was 4875. So there's like almost a 900 strikeout gap between the two of them. And the next closest active player is barely over 3,000. So CC Sabathia and Justin Verlander um, barely have over 3,000. I think CC's basically done. Uh, Verlander, dude, Verlander's still throwing hard. Yeah. Um, he's still incredible. But is he going to have another... How much would that be? Another, like... <laughs> Jesus Christ. You basically have to double up. He'd basically need another 14 200 strikeout seasons. Jesus Christ. Um, Anyway, Nolan Ryan, incredible. Uh, And then probably the craziest one of all, but kind of on a technicality, is Gordy Howe, a hockey player. So, you know, I'm sure all of our Canadian listeners know all about Gordy Howe. And virtually no one else. (laughs) Um, But uh, he played in six decades. He came into the league in 1946, played until 1980 um, between the NHL and the World Hockey Association. Uh, And then he got picked up for one game, which I I don't know all of the details around this. I assume it was just like a promotional thing to get butts in the seats. Uh, But he got picked up for one game uh for the Detroit Vipers in the International Hockey League which is still a professional organization like he was still like he signed a monetary contract for it uh in 1997 so officially his playing career stretched from 1946 to 1997 and the last game when he laced up a pair of skates and keep in mind not in the NHL anymore like in a lesser hockey league but like Hockey's still a tough sport. Like, people can still light you up. He played that last game at the ripe old age of 69. Dude, if if I'm 69, I'm going to think twice before I shovel my driveway. Yeah. Like, to be on a professional, to be on a, in a professional hockey rink, like. Yeah, I mean, I, I. I assume that people were like, hey, don't, don't crush, don't crush Gordy. Like, I hope. I mean, if, if I took hockey as seriously as i take like sports science i would have actually done more research about this because it very well could have been a thing where like he signed a contract he took one skate around the ice for three minutes and like came back off i don't know it could have been something like that but i mean it just theoretically played his last professional game in 1980 and was presumably at least somewhat in skating shape 17 years later yeah i mean that's even, crazy even without that that game in 1997. I mean, it's, to play at a high level from, from 46 to 1980. Yeah. I mean, that's insane. So, uh, you know, we, we get that question all the time from people like, Hey, you know, I'm getting into lifting. I'm 41, I'm 48. Like, you know, how should I train? What do you think? 
And uh, it's it's just awesome to see people out there doing this stuff, competing at a high level, way late into their career like that. It, it's really, really impressive. Now, we don't have any other feats of strength. Um, just throwing that out there. So, I mean, it was the holidays. There aren't that many meets like right over Christmas um, or the holiday season, I suppose, because, you know, most people are traveling, doing stuff with family. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I looked I looked into it. There were some people who have gotten stronger, hit some PRs. Like I, I think John Hack recently hit a squat PR and a bench PR, which, you know, that's cool. But no like crazy world records or anything just wild recently. So that is why we led into, or that's why we led with various professional athletes with super long careers. Yeah. Another thing is like, we, we do have a great deal of influence in the various strength related pursuits. We did kind of send out an email in December. We said, Hey, we're going to power down the podcast over the holidays. If you hit any PRs, we're we're not going to be discussing them. So you might want to just everybody chill for a while. So I think a lot of people just out of respect for the show, just kind of tone things down a little bit. I would, I would like to think that's how it went. All right. Now this is not feats of strength related, um, but it's still quite fascinating. So why don't you die? I don't even know how to intro to this. You just dive in. Yeah. So we'll just call this segment, the drama segment. Um, even though I guess like all of the, just mass game changers related media. That's kind of drama, I guess. Sure. Um, but this relates to, I'm sure we've any weightlifting feat of strength that we've shared. I mean, this is is relevant. Yeah, exactly. So, um, there was a German documentary, uh, which translates in English to Lord of the lifters that came out recently. So in the interest of full transparency, I speak a little bit of German, not much, Uh, certainly not enough to watch an entire documentary and understand more than maybe 30% of it. Um, So I'm going off of a summary posted on All Things Gym. We can leave leave that in the show notes um, for anyone else who, you know, wants to make sure that I'm representing their account of it correctly. And most importantly, for my interests, you are not making these claims, Correct. You, you are simply reporting on an article. Correct. Perfect. That's what my lawyers told told us to say. Um, but yeah, so th- what I have heard is that there is going to be an English translation of this documentary coming out soon. When that occurs, I will definitely watch it. But for the time being, I'm going off of the all the All Things Gym recap of it. So like I said, translated Lord of the Lifters. Um, and so essentially it is alleging massive fraud and corruption by, uh, by the international weightlifting federation. And interestingly, the IWF isn't flatly denying it. Um, they're saying that basically they know about some of the stuff that was reported and they think some of it's incorrect. Um, but there is like new stuff in the documentary that was recently brought to their attention. So before I get into what the documentary is actually saying, this was the IWF statement about it. Um, So they said, amid a number of apparent falsehoods, unsubstantiated, 
unsubstantiated allegations and disproven rumors dating back to as far as 2008, there does seem to be some fresh information included in the program which may be of use to the IWF's efforts to promote clean weightlifting and protect clean sport. The IWF will move very quickly to investigate the issues raised in the show as quickly as possible and has requested the transcripts and research material. The IWF takes these allegations very seriously and, where appropriate, will consider independent third-party assistance in investigating these matters. So, what I'll say about that is, if like if we assume that the stuff in the documentary is correct, I don't know that an IWF internal investigation will actually accomplish anything. <laughs> um, but I do think it's telling that they're not just like completely repudiating it out outright. So anyway, um, what 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 is being alleged in this documentary is as follows. Um, so they start by just generally discussing the drug problem in weightlifting. Um, weightlifting has a higher rate of positive drug tests than any other Olympic sport that may or may not mean actually higher rates of drug use. I'm sure that it is among the highest rates of drug use for all Olympic sports. Uh, you know, like cycling may be higher or at least probably was higher back in the heyday, but you know, easier to test for anabolics and EPO, but that's, you know, that's another discussion. Um, but at least in terms of rates of returning positive tests weightlifting is worse than any other olympic sport um one of the things they talk about here which i was completely unaware of is that from 2008 to 2017 half of all medalists in olympic and world competitions in weightlifting weren't drug tested i thought uh that there was just an automatic policy of if you're on the podium you get tested um, I'm pretty sure that's how it is in powerlifting, and I assumed more people got tested in weightlifting. Um, but at least this documentary is saying that half of the medalists from from 08 to 2017 weren't tested, uh, and two thirds of Russian medalists weren't tested, which uh, is inter interesting given their their history of doping. Um, one of the other allegations made is that in training um basically like you want to see a certain number of out of meat tests to you know basically because if you're only testing in contest people can just cycle off and beat the tests um so one of the allegations made is essentially that like the iwf will drug test people like the top lifters when they're way far out of competition but will intentionally not test them uh in the months like in the months immediately leading up to big meets so they can still show up and like hit big numbers, set world records and get the sports impress. Um, one of the other things they talk about is the organization that the IWF uses for its drug testing. So essentially, if there is a weightlifting meet held in the United States that is san sanctioned by the um, American weightlifting uh, body, it's going to use USADA for testing. For international meets, I, the IWF generally covers the testing instead of the host country, and they use an organization called HUNADO, H-U-N-A-D-O. Um, and one of the allegations made in the documentary is that uh, HUNADO is, is possibly slash probably covering for lifters who are using gear. Um, 
one of the data points they bring up is like if you were following weightlifting in 2015, um, worlds were held in the U.S., I believe Houston that year, um, and USADA, the United States uh, Anti-Doping Agency, was very insistent that they wanted to handle the testing for that meet since it was going to be on U.S. soil. They basically said, this is our jurisdiction. We don't really trust you guys. We want to be the ones doing the drug testing. And 2015 Worlds had a higher rate of in-contest positive tests than any other like World or Olympic meet ever. I think, if memory serves, there were 24 positives out of that meet. Either 24 or 18. It was some reasonably large number, though, um, which was way more than than other meets. So like uh, 2008 Olympics, for example, a lot of people have got popped on retests, but they didn't get popped with like the immediate tests that came back right after the Olympics. 2015 Worlds was a bloodbath, like the immediate results of in contests, drug tests. Tons of people got popped, uh, possibly because USADA was testing and not Hunado. Um so they get into it a little bit more. They interview someone who um, who who they said, and I think probably is the national team doctor for the Moldova weightlifting team. And uh, that individual claimed that if uh, Hunado is testing your lifters leading up to a meet or in a meet, you can just pay the person who's collecting the samples sixty bucks if it's a national meet. Or two hundred bucks if it's an international meet. If you want the test to come back clean, which that is quite the allegation. Because the thing is, like, dude, if you're allowing corruption and you're allowing people to like buy clean tests, you would think that that the pound of flesh would be bigger than two hundred bucks. You would definitely think so. Yeah. But uh, anyway, that is the allegation made by the Moldova team doctor. Um. One of the other things they they discuss uh, going back to 2015 Worlds is that uh, Hunado was doing out-of-meat testing for a lot of the athletes leading up to Worlds and tested a bunch of them in like the month or so before competition. And for quite a few of those athletes, their in-competition sample, when theoretically they cycled off and would have the greatest chance of, of passing a drug test... USADA tested them, came back positive, and it very much looked like, you know, you were using stuff in the past like month or so. You almost got it out of your system, but we have sensitive tests and we can detect some of these metabolites. So like several weeks ago or a month ago, you would have had a lot more shit in your system and it would have been way easier to detect. Hunato did testing during that time period and said a lot of those people were clean when they necessarily must have had more stuff in their system. Unless, counter-scandal, maybe USADA is throwing people under the bus who aren't actually using... That's a joke. I don't think they're actually doing that. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if like the Russian Minister of Sport says that or something, though. Um, and then... So, a- another person they interviewed is a guy named Hans Geyer, who is a... Uh, WADA accredited German drug tester or works for a WADA accredited accredited laboratory. Um, And he just straight up said that um, they knew that some people were passing out of contest drug tests because Hunato was letting people basically submit fraudulent urine. 
Um, like, you know, you, you come in, uh, the person who you're actually supposed to drug test is so w- w- when I was talking about like the 60 or $200 to, to pass a drug test, the system in place apparently is basically they will collect the wrong person's urine if you're willing to pay a fee because there is still that database. There needs to be those samples like on file. Um, and so if they just, you know, straight up didn't collect a sample, uh, that would be suspicious. Or if they collected the correct sample and said it's clean and then they retest it and it's dirty as hell, that would also be suspicious. So apparently the system in place is like you pay 200 bucks and then like your buddy who doesn't use anything pees in the cup for you. Um, and so Hans Geyer is saying like, yeah, we know for sure they're doing this because analyzing their biological passport and in some cases DNA, we know for sure that these samples that were being collected aren't actually from the athletes they're supposed to correspond to. Um, so he's like corroborating that part of the story. Um, let's see. And then the documentary shifts to Thailand. They talk to a Thai female lifter um, who I think, I think her story is she placed fourth at the Olympics one year, wasn't tested. Uh, and at least one of the people ahead of her got popped on retests. And so she officially has a bronze medal now. I think that was her backstory. But anyway, she was at least like a top four, top five lifter in her weight class. Um, She admits to basically doping her entire professional weightlifting career. I think from the time she was 18 onward, uh, she talked about doping within the Thai weightlifting system, talking about how people like athletes as young as 13 are already being put on gear to be able to compete internationally. Um, And in her account, she was basically like, look, I know I was on drugs. I had nothing to do with it. My coach and the team doctor, you know, were the ones handling the protocols to make sure I got the stuff I needed and that it would be out of my system to where I could pass tests. Turns out her coach during that time period is now the IWF vice president. (laughs) Did she name him like by name in the, the documentary? I think so. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so also keep in mind, here's someone who like, you know, maybe it'll come out that there was like shady business going on and people like paid her off to give false testimony or something. But this at least looks very credible on the surface because this is an individual who, uh, competed her entire career. One of the best in the world, never failed a drug test admitting that she used drugs the whole time, which what, how, how will that do anything except tarnish her legacy? Um, you know, and still being willing to say this stuff on camera. So that's certainly interesting. Uh, and then, so, so that's all of the doping related stuff. There were further allegations related to financial corruption, uh, cash payment for bribes to top IWF officials, um, having secret bank accounts to collect those cash bribes and like hide them away from like auditors and tax people. And then also possible tax fraud. Um, so the, the corruption allegations made in this documentary, a lot of them related to doping and the IWF, like possibly covering for dopers and turning a blind eye to it. Uh, but there was like a whole other part of the documentary related to financial corruption as well. Um, which I think is probably less relevant to the podcast. And 
I personally just care less about. Um, but related to that side of things, they interviewed a guy, uh, Mark Peeth, or Pyth, P-I-E-T-H, um, who was one of the investigators for the recent FIFA scandal, which, if you followed that, it was pretty bad, like, pretty ugly. Um, and this guy at least claims that the financial corruption he has seen looking into the IWF case is much more brazen than even what he saw with FIFA. And so, I mean, here here's kind of my take on the whole thing. So like I said, this is a documentary which may or may not be biased, may or may not be truthful. Uh, seemingly, the IWF isn't dismissing it out of hand, which I think at least counts for something. But I mean, my take on it is like, let's say a quarter of this is true. That's still fucking bad, you know? Yeah. Um. So, I at this point don't have that much faith in the IWF to actually carry out a clean and legitimate internal investigation. Because the thing is, like, if they're as corrupt as this documentary is alleging, what do we think they're going to do? Come back and say, like, "Yep, it's all right. We're the crooks here." Like, they're not. They're not going to fucking do that. Um, but yeah, I'm very interested to see how all of this plays out. The worst case scenario, and I kind of think the most likely scenario is that, uh, weightlifting is toast. Like it will carry on, but there have already been threats to remove weightlifting from the Olympics, uh, mainly related to all of the positive drug tests that do already happen. If it turns out there should be a shit ton more that the actual governing body for the sport is covering for they're fucking toast like they're dead in the water and uh more relevant to my interests, which is powerlifting there are a lot of people out there who are still like clamoring for and expecting powerlifting to get into the olympics and here's my humble opinion if weightlifting gets the boot for this stuff, like primarily drug stuff, there's no way in hell powerlifting is ever getting in. Um, as I understand it, there had there were already kind of talks to remove weightlifting just simply because like it's not nearly as popular as a lot of the other sports in the Olympics. It doesn't draw the viewer numbers, uh, etc. Um, and so like. I say this as someone who loves powerlifting and who has tried weightlifting and sucked at it and didn't particularly like it. I think weightlifting is a more enjoyable spectator sport than powerlifting, hands down. Um, so, I mean, you know, if, if there's it, an issue of public interest and in just like what's going to draw viewer numbers, they're not going to put powerlifting in if weightlifting was already on the rocks there. And then if the issue is like drug problems, like, Dude, powerlifting also has drug problems and also has a lot of people uh, like has high rates of positive tests, um, even with laxer doping controls than weightlifting has. So, yeah, if they kick weightlifting out for any of that stuff, powerlifting is never getting in within our lifetimes. Um, But yeah, so uh, just to recap, German documentary. I think it's coming out in English soon. That's what I've seen people saying. Um, And like I said, if even a fraction of the allegations in it are true, it is a a bad look for the IWF. 
So Greg, you know, you know me, I'm a scientist, so it's important for me to have a certain level of evidence before I make a conclusion. So absolutely a documentary that's very interesting. It sounds like they have some credible witnesses, but what it's going to take for me to really form an opinion on this is I want to see a debate that's twice as long as the movie, and then I want to see a discussion of the, de- the debate that is four times longer than that. And once I have that information available, then I'll feel ready to, to really have an opinion. No, I, I think I that's mean, that, fair. That's perfectly understandable. That's the standard. So, okay, let's move on. So listeners know we're going to every other week with episodes, which means the Q&A episodes are kind of getting folded in and merged into the regular ones. So we've got a couple Q&A questions, more than a couple. But uh, Greg, why don't you throw me the first one from Andy T here? You got it. So Andy T asks, what is the best way to achieve slash plan for lifting goals going into the new year? For example, if I want to increase my bench from 260 to 315, I'm assuming kilos. I I hope so. Yeah. Um, No. So people who are in people who have heard this before are going to roll their eyes because it's kind of cliche, but it's also good advice. So if you go into this and you say, like, my goal is to increase my my bench by what is that like 55 pounds that's not a particularly effective goal um the the acronym that everybody uses with goal setting like i said kind of cliche but pretty pretty useful is setting what they call smart goals so specific measurable attainable relevant and time bound and so uh, when it says relevant basically what that means is that the goal you're setting actually aligns with your broader goals and is truly important to you is it relevant now I I learned realistic and I always thought that it was incredibly redundant with attainable or achievable. So, I mean, if if the powers that be have changed that to relevant, I still think like no shit. It should be something you actually want to do. Why? Why else are you setting the goal in the first place? But I would appreciate the change just to reduce redundancy. So there are multiple versions of the SMART acronym, and I combined the ones that I thought weren't stupid. <laughs> so Fair enough. Yeah, so um, you'll see different uh, kind of adaptations of this, but th- this is the clustering of, ac- of words that I think make the most sense. And, and you'll see people use this in ver- a variety of different fields, and they adopt it kind of based on what they're going for. Um, but, but as you mentioned, realistic, uh, is often part of it. Sometimes that gets lumped in as attainable or achievable, which makes sense. It's critical to be realistic with your expectations, which means being honest and proactive about your barriers to achieving that goal. And one way to go about doing that is to have smaller kind of intermediate checkpoint goals. And that, in my opinion, is what makes relevant a a really key factor here. So like I said, if you just say that the entirety of your goal is I want to increase my bench by 55 pounds. That's a good goal, but in terms of like what you're going for, like that'd be awesome, but that's not an effective goal in in terms of the parameters that you've set. Sometimes it helps to have smaller intermediate goals that are relevant to your broader goal. So, um, and again, they have to be time bound. So maybe instead of saying, I want to increase my bench 55 pounds, you say within the next 12 weeks, I want to increase it by 15 pounds or something like that. And you start sending these intermediate checkpoints. Um, now in many cases, your smart goal might not actually be your actual goal, 
but rather a plan to combat or work against your largest barrier. So maybe your your goal deep down uh, is I want to increase my bench press 55 pounds, but maybe your barrier you keep you keep running into is that you continue to skip workouts. So if your goal is to have like a really high bench, you're probably not skipping workouts, but but just in general here, sometimes you look at the barrier that's your biggest challenge and you say, well, okay, I know that my goal is I want to lose 15 pounds, but the smart goal I'm going to set is for the next 12 weeks, I'm going to get into the gym at least three days a week or something like that. So it's relevant to the true end goal, but it's more specific. It's more measurable. And for you right now, it is more attainable or achievable, right? It's something that you have a lot more autonomy and control over. Um, now, some people, when it comes to goal setting, uh, they prefer really small changes that are more gradual in nature. Some people prefer really drastic overhauls. When it comes to that, it really comes down to knowing yourself. So if you set a really, really small goal that's so attainable that it doesn't even get you excited or interested, that might not be effective because you might be so apathetic about it. You're like, eh, whatever. Um, some people prefer to say like, no, this is it. We are entering a really specific enthusiastic phase here and we've got this goal. But like I said, the most important thing, it's got to be specific enough that you can keep yourself accountable. It's got to be measurable so that you can be objective about it. It has to be attainable or achievable. It's got to line up with your broader goals and you have to have a time limit on it. I, I really think those are the key aspects to setting a good goal where you can hold yourself accountable and really have a, objective assessments about whether or not you're on pace and whether or not you have really successfully completed it. I agree. Okay, we've got a question from Matt Ellison. The conventional wisdom seems to be that individual fiber hypertrophy plays a much larger role in muscle hypertrophy than hyperplasia. So basically hypertrophy is what is really underlying muscle growth rather than hyperplasia. I, I think it's funny how uh, how totalizing that concept is just from the wording of the question. Uh, fiber hypertrophy plays a much larger role in muscle hypertrophy than hyperplasia. Right. You know, hi- hypertrophy completely explains hypertrophy like it's Correct. the identity property so he he's saying like a much larger role in total change in muscle size yeah um but yeah i mean the the idea that hypertrophy is really the only thing going on has become so common that hypertrophy has has become literally synonymous with change in muscle size right. which i find interesting just from a linguistic perspective yeah yeah it's true um and so the, the question continues, it seems like we don't have much control over hyperplasia. Is anyone looking into how we can boost hyperplasia or maybe our overall hypertrophy potential? So again, using hypertrophy, I think, as a proxy for muscle growth. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a that's a good question. Um, and the answer to the actual question being asked is very straightforward. Is anyone looking into how we can boost hyperplasia? No. Um, <laughs> they aren't, <laughs> they, they, I, I am not aware of a single active line of research interested in that, but what I will say is, um, so the, the, this question basically seems to be assuming, um, possibly that hyperplasia doesn't occur or that if it does occur, it's kind of trivial and that, um, hypertrophy or change in fiber size plays a much larger role. And so I just kind of want to rant about hyperplasia a little bit because that is the that's the common line basically that 
muscle growth occurs due to fiber hypertrophy and maybe some expansion of like connective tissues and other stuff. But basically, fiber hypertrophy is is by far the main driving factor. Um, and I learned in undergrad ex-phys, and I think you said you did as well, that hyperplasia doesn't occur in humans, that muscles get bigger because fibers get bigger, and that's that. You don't get more fibers. Um, and honestly, I just don't buy that. Uh, that's what I learned. That's what I believed. And then when I started looking into the research a bit more, um, I started getting more skeptical of that. And I think what kind of cemented it for me is Jose Antonio wrote a really good article about hyperplasia for the ISSN blog a while ago, maybe like four or five years ago, um, which laid out a lot of the evidence, which I personally think is is pretty convincing. Um, so, you know, for starters, people do claim that hyperplasia doesn't occur in humans because it has never been directly observed in humans. I want to be upfront about that. But, and this is a big but, the reason it hasn't been directly observed in humans is you can't do the experiments in humans you would need to do in order to observe hyperplasia. So, basically, to to measure or, like, account for hyperplasia, that requires counting muscle fibers and counting all of them. So, in, like, a, a mouse study, say, that measures hyperplasia, to actually count how many muscle fibers there are, um, you have to kill them. You have to kill the mouse. And then like, if you're looking at say the hamstrings or whatever, you would cut its entire hamstring muscle off. And then like, uh, I think you, you transect it at the midway point and then just basically get under a microscope and start counting. Um, so like you're never going to do that study in humans. So until, there's some sort of non-invasive way to count all of the fibers in a muscle, which I don't even I don't even know if that's technically possible. It's certainly not possible with current technology. But until there's a way to do that, it will never be observed in humans because we can't apply the correct experimental techniques to be able to observe it. Um, but what I will say is that essentially researchers have been able to observe hyperplasia in every context that they've tried to. So the most uh, the most famous hyperplasia studies um, were the, the bird stretch studies where they'd essentially put weights on birds' wings, which would like place a stretch on the muscles that like keep the wings like retracted and pulled up. Um, and using models like that, they found just absolutely ridiculous, both hypertrophy and hyperplasia. Um, so like total change in muscle size of like something close to 200% in a matter of weeks. Um, and you know, that was like individual fibers getting twice as big and like 60% more total muscle fibers. So like those studies are wild. Um, but they've also used like much more reasonable interventions in mice and in cats, um, where like basically it's just the sort of resistance training that humans would do. So they can like hook a, a mouse up to an apparatus that like makes them squat. And if they don't squat, they like shock their feet and that like induces them to squat and stand back up. Um, and so with like, you know, reasonable training frequencies and loads, they were able to induce hyperplasia in mice with training that looks very similar to 
like human resistance training. Uh, similar story with cats. So like, I don't know if if it was one of those things where like let's say they tried to find hyper or hyperplasia in three different animals and really it only panned out with the avian stretch studies then I'd be like okay like maybe you have a point um maybe with like normal type exercise and in non-avian species maybe we're not seeing hyperplasia uh but you know they found it in three different animals now uh using a variety of different protocols and two of those were mammals so I don't know why one would assume hyperplasia doesn't occur in humans um, and, uh, on the human side of things, there is some indirect evidence that hyperplasia occurs. So, um, there was a, a pretty famous study by McDougal in 82, um, where essentially they had, they recruited untrained people and they trained them for six months and they compared various muscle fiber characteristics and, and performance outcomes and whatnot, uh, for the, the untrained subjects versus the same subjects after six months of training versus a sample of powerlifters and bodybuilders who were, you know, quite jacked and had a considerable amount of training experience. And uh, in that study, they found that muscle fiber size was similar between the individuals who trained for six months and the powerlifters and bodybuilders who'd been training for years and years. Um and so, like, there's two possible interpretations there. One is just that, you know, people start with different numbers of muscle fibers. The total number of muscle fibers you start with maybe constrains the amount of muscle growth that can take place. And, you know, maybe people who are drawn to strength and physique sports are just people who are born with more muscle fibers and thus more muscle growth potential. And I think that that's a strong possibility. And I think that that, that partially explains the results. Uh, but the other thing I'll say is like, people don't stop growing at six months. Like maybe you're really coming close to approaching your genetic potential after five years, 10 years. I mean, some growth probably occurs between five and 10 years, but things are progressing pretty slowly by that point. But you know, you're not to the point of just barely eking out gains at the six month point. Like you, Virtually everyone can still grow a considerable amount more after just six months of training. Um, so I I find it unlikely that the previously untrained subjects in the McDougal study, you know, now have fibers as big as the strength athletes and bodybuilders and thus are super elite and will have a hard time growing more. Um, so you know, would they end up with just fibers way bigger than the bodybuilders and powerlifters? Maybe. I kind of doubt it. Uh, competitive strength athletes and bodybuilders are generally pretty good at, at getting most of the growth that they're going to get. Um, so I kind of think that as training age increases, uh, hyperplasia starts playing a larger and larger role in the total muscle growth that takes place. Um, that's just a hunch. Um, okay. And then moving on more indirect human evidence, there was a study looking at basically counting fiber numbers in the tibialis anterior of dead people. Um, you know, like people died, donated their bodies to science and someone wanted to like look into this. And so they, uh, I believe it was the tibialis anterior. They just cut it off and just count fibers between the dominant and non-dominant sides. 
And so apparently your non-dominant tibialis anterior gets more work than your dominant side tibialis anterior, which kind of makes sense because like, you know, if you're like kicking stuff, I guess uh, your non-dominant leg is going to be your plant leg. And I guess tibialis anterior would be involved in that. Uh, If you're like throwing stuff, that's like the leg absorbing the shock um, of the landing from the throw. So I, I can buy that. And if memory serves in that study, the the subjects had like 13% more total fibers in their non-dominant tibialis anterior compared to their dominant side. And, you know, possible explanations. One, maybe it was just sampling bias. That's always possible. Two, maybe just as like the body is culling muscle fibers, uh, there's some way that the brain senses what dominant and non-dominant side is going to be and culls more muscle fibers on the non-dominant or on the dominant side. And so you're just born with more muscle fibers on your non-dominant tibialis anterior. That seems like a stretch to me, but that's a possible interpretation. Or what I think the most likely interpretation is, is just that just from activities of daily living and using your non-dominant tibialis anterior more, some hyperplasia occurs and you wind up with more fibers. Um, So yeah, you know, that's not causal evidence, but it's more indirect evidence suggesting that hyperplasia very well may occur in humans. So like I said, I'm of the camp that uh, certainly during the early stages of muscular development, fiber hypertrophy plays, you know, the definitely dominant role explaining changes in muscle size. But I do kind of think that as your training career progresses, one, I'm I'm quite convinced that hyperplasia occurs. And then two, for say someone who has five years of training experience and they're still growing slowly but surely, there's a part of me that kind of thinks that hyperplasia plays a pretty meaningful role in continued muscle growth. Um, one of the concepts I've talked about on the podcast before is that like surface area to volume relationships are a big factor in all across biology. Um, like the, that's a, a main constraint in cellular metabolism and a bunch of different shit. Um, and so like, I think that, I think that that is probably at least puts a soft cap on fiber growth. Just as fibers get larger and larger, diffusion distances for oxygen and waste clearance get larger and larger. And I think that that kind of constrains how big individual fibers can get. And maybe they start approaching that level, you know, after a matter of months or a couple years rather than five or 10 years. And so, you know, past that point, maybe there is still some hypertrophy to occur, but maybe continued growth is maybe more hyperplasia driven. Um, you know, not saying it, it, it accounts for 80% of new growth, but I think it's, it's at least like a non-negligible contributor, you know, maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 30%, maybe it's 80%. I don't fucking know, but I think that it, it probably, I, I personally think it likely plays a non-negligible role in ongoing total muscle growth. Um, so, yeah, and like I said, to answer your question initially, I, no one is looking into how to boost hyperplasia because it's kind of like I think my view is the heretical one. I think most people still kind of think it doesn't occur. So why 
why spend time and research dollars uh, trying to develop a line of research investigating something that a lot of your field thinks is a myth? Um, that wouldn't be a way to win awards and get promoted. <laughs> so it definitely would not. So yeah, no one, no one's looking into it. Um, but I personally think that it occurs in probably to a relevant degree in trained lifters. All right. So this next question, it looks like it's from a, a really dedicated listener here. Yeah. So, um, question from reps for Jesus, uh, which very cool for your parents to name you that. Um, <laughs> hell yeah. So reps for Jesus asks, does collagen or glycine supplementation provide any benefit to connective tissue, muscle, or skin beyond simply increasing protein quantity? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I wrote about this in mass a couple months back and I got to be honest when I, when I first started looking into it, I, I kind of was skeptical about collagen supplements for no specific reason. It was just one of those things I heard about it and I was like, eh, I doubt it. But looking into it, you know, sometimes that's kind of like my, my starting position. Oh yeah, with for a lot sure. Of things. Yeah. Uh, but looking into it, there, there actually is some pretty nice evidence. So starting out at the beginning here, um, Collagen is a very abundant protein uh, in the body, the most abundant protein, and obviously it plays really important roles in bone, tendon, cartilage, and muscle tissue. Um, now, when, when we do any kind of mechanical loading, running, jumping, lifting, uh, it stimulates collagen turnover in these tissues. Uh, and so we need to increase our collagen synthesis to basically maintain the strength and integrity of these tissues. So most studies, when it comes to looking at collagen supplements, we're looking at usually bone and tendon turnover uh, as the key things. And then some, you know, downstream effects on the structure or function of joints. So um, the, the idea with collagen supplementation or gelatin supplementation, which is very similar uh, is that they provide the raw materials needed to support this increased collagen synthesis. Um, obviously, collagen is made of a specific sequence of amino acids, and if you take a, a collagen or gelatin supplement, you are providing those raw materials in ample quantities. The reason that the question includes glycine is because there is reason to think that glycine is kind of one of the key limiting amino acids in that. It's, it's kind of like the leucine of tendons. <sighs> That's a very specific metaphor. I wouldn't go that far, but but it does tend to be the one that you'd be less likely to get from other sources in the diet that I could, gotcha. could be rate limiting. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, it's not like it do, doesn't have like a specific initiation. Yeah. It, uh, do, yeah. it doesn't kick off a analog of the mTOR pathway Correct. or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, looking through some of the research on it, there was a study by Shaw and colleagues in 2017. Uh, they gave a vitamin C enriched gelatin supplement before six minutes of jumping, ro jumping rope. Uh, and they did find uh, an enhancement of collagen synthesis uh, post-exercise. There's a study by Clark and colleagues all the way back in 2008, where they gave 10 grams of collagen to a big group of collegiate athletes, actually, for 24 weeks. And they did find some statistically significant improvements in a variety of outcomes related to joint pain. In 2011, there was a study by McClendon et al. And they looked at the effects of collagen supplementation on cartilage thickness, specifically in people with arthritic conditions. So they did find a, a statistically significant increase in cartilage thickness, but it's a little bit questionable whether or not that, that truly is going to translate over to people with non-arthritic uh, non populations. Uh, 
the most recent study I've seen on college, or one of the more recent ones, was by Kermsey et al. in 2019. Probably 99% chance I'm pronouncing that name wrong. But uh, they were looking at recreationally active men. They were doing resistance training. Uh, It was a 24-week study where they were given some collagen peptides as a supplement. And what they found was an increase in fat-free mass. I I believe they used DEXA for that measurement. Uh, But they found no no change in muscle fiber cross-sectional area. So the the author's interpretation of of those two findings was was that maybe there was an increase in connective tissue mass rather than muscle mass itself. So taken together, I mean, there's certainly some evidence to suggest that supplementing with either gelatin or collagen uh, may may have some positive effects related to collagen synthesis. Notably, you're going to want to make sure that it is combi- combined with vitamin C. So vitamin C plays a really key role in the process of collagen synthesis. And so if you put all these amino acids uh, in the mixture there, uh, but you don't have sufficient vitamin C intake uh, along with that environment, it's not going to be helpful. You want to make sure. Yeah, yeah th- that's why not getting enough vitamin C causes scurvy. Yep. Um, vitamin C, if memory serves, is a cofactor for the rate-limiting step of collagen synthesis. Um, and man, scurvy's wild. Uh, so should I go off script? I mean, how far off script are you going? It's like reasonably <laughs> off script, but it's a it's a fun little tidbit about scurvy. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so um, scurvy was a massive problem at the start of the age of exploration because essentially, if you were, you know, if you were traveling on a boat for months at a time, you you needed food that wasn't going to spoil. Um, one might think like, oh, why why don't they just fish over the side of the boat? There's not that many fish just like swimming around in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, most fish kind of hug shorelines and continental shelves. Um, so like that's not incredibly viable. So mostly what they would eat is just hard tack, which was basically like really hard, dry bread, not much moisture. So not much like mold or rot could could take place um, and heavily, heavily salted meat. Uh, The salt would also kill bacteria, and it preserved it really well. So, you know, like salted pork, salted beef, salted fish. Um, All of those things, interestingly, don't have a ton of vitamin C. And so the British, you might remember this guy's name. I'm blanking on his name. Arguably the first randomized control trial ever. I, I remember the story, but not the name. Dang it. Yeah, so I'm blanking on the dude's name, but he was a hero. Uh, performed what very well may have been the first randomized control trial that ever occurred. Basically saw like, hey, all of our sailors are getting scurvy and that's not good. Maybe they're missing something in their food because their diet is incredibly limited when they're on ships. Uh, So let's just try to give them a bunch of stuff, uh, like various things one at a time and see if any of these various substances uh, prevent scurvy. And so one of the things they tested was lime juice um, and lime juice has a lot of vitamin C. They didn't know that at the time. They didn't know lack of vitamin C caused scurvy, but they did find if our sailors drink a little bit of lime juice every day, they don't get scurvy anymore. Um, And so if you've ever heard of like the British Navy being referred to as limeys, that's why. Um, People found out they drank lime juice and they're like, that's weird. Those weird British people, fucking limeys. 
Um, but that played a pretty large role in the British Empire becoming like the dominant imperial force during that era. Because um, basically, like, they could sail different places, take their army, and arrive reasonably healthy to get on with like the conquest and rape and pillaging. Uh, whereas, like, if the French or the Spanish did it, by the time they landed, they'd be in some rough shape. Um, yeah, so, I, mean, I mean, scurvy is a it's a disaster. I mean, you're yeah. breaking down collagen. Yeah. And, and you're unable to replace it due to this lack of vitamin C. And so it's it's a horrible, horrible. Yeah. It, uh, don't you die from internal bleeding? Uh, is, yeah. 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 So basically your, your structures lose structure. Yeah. You have collagen in the walls of your blood vessels and. As that breaks down and you're unable to replace that collagen, your blood vessels get weaker and weaker and weaker. One of the early signs of scurvy, uh, well, one of them is you start bleeding from your gums um, just because, like, your, your, I guess your teeth get loose um, and your gums are reasonably thin in the first place. Like, those walls break down, you bleed from your gums. You'll also show, like, basically speckled skin, like batechia, because, like, uh, capillaries rupture and you just have like tiny little bruises all over your body and then a few weeks later you're dead because uh, more major blood vessels mess up so anyway um, vitamin C very important for the British Empire back in the day very important for collagen synthesis now yeah there, there was a show uh, recently called the terror the first season of it they were uh, on a, a, a naval expedition and this was a key thing was scurvy played a big role in the show. And they were always like, how much lime juice do we have left? And like, <laughs> it, is it still good? And stuff mm-hmm. like that. It was actually, it was a really fascinating show. It, I mean, it was totally like fictitious, yeah, historical fiction, but yeah. in any, in any case, this played a, a big role. Um, now the, the dosing, usually gelatin or collagen in these types of studies, you're going to dose somewhere around five to 15 grams per day, usually 10 to 15 it's usually going to be combined with about 50 milligrams of vitamin C. And if you're worried about, you know, vitamin C, I heard that stops my muscle growth. Uh, we've got a, an article coming out soon about that, but rest assured 50 milligrams is nowhere near a dose to be worried about that. We also discussed it, I think, on the last podcast before our break, right? To some extent, yeah. yeah. I can't remember how far into detail we went. Um Okay, so uh, I, I am a little bit curious with these studies. So if you have a diet that's already high in vitamin C and you're getting high protein intake from diverse protein sources, particularly those with with, with glycine, which actually can be kind of hard to find depending on your protein sources, I'd be curious to see exactly how much of these potential benefits basically just wash away in the absence of that type of diet. But in any case, it does seem to be a, a, a nice strategy to kind of hedge your bets and make sure you've got enough of those materials around for collagen synthesis. Um, the one thing to keep in mind, uh, high doses of hydroxyproline, which will be in those collagen and gelatin supplements, it's something you'd want to keep an eye out uh, for the potential formation of kidney stones. Uh, these trials have been pretty long and, and haven't had like, you know, uh, haven't reported panicked like, oh, like a third of our sample got kidney stones or anything like that. But it, theoretically, it's something that you would want to keep an eye out for. Now, uh, the question also asked a little bit about skin. I'm going to share my bias here. I just don't care that much about skin. So this is not an area I've looked into a lot. <laughs> Uh, 
I'll probably change my tune as I get older and then skin changes start becoming more relevant to me. But um, in any case, I totally understand why someone else would have an interest in it. But for me, I'm young and indestructible and I'm going to live forever. So what do I care about skin aging? Hell yeah. Um, okay, so there is a there's actually several reviews uh, out there in the literature, uh, not the type of literature I'm usually in. It's a lot of like cosmetically oriented journals, not like sports science ones. But there's one by a recent one by Choi et al. in 2019. And I mean, to sum it all up, the, the research that's available for collagen supplements and skin, it, it's pretty good. Uh, there's emerging ev- evidence suggesting like the stuff we have already would suggest that it's pretty good for wound healing and skin aging. There have been a number of studies looking at oral, uh, oral collagen supplements, uh, which have favorable effects on skin elasticity, hydration, and dermal collagen density. So uh, the collagen research when it comes to skin related outcomes does seem to be pretty uh, pretty favorable um so overall it does look like there's some good stuff out there for skin applications in addition to bone and connective tissues the bone and connective tissue stuff is a little bit more preliminary it looks like the body of skin related literature is uh larger um, based on what i saw in that review um the big caveat uh, is don't expect much in terms of effects on muscle when it comes to collagen and gelatin supplementation. Um, there, there's a paper by Stu Phillips in 2017 that, that had a bunch of protein quality scores and uh, collagen was zero, which is not a high score. <laughs> um, so so it, it, it doesn't have an amino acid uh, mixture that's going to be particularly favorable at all for general muscle growth. But as a specific, uh, you know, a very specific supplement oriented toward those connective tissues and potentially skin as well, there, there is some some favorable research out there. Okay, any comments on on your skin routine, Greg? No, not really. Yeah, um, you want to keep that one close to the chest, you know? Yeah, keep your friends close. Keep your skincare routine closer. Exactly. Okay. Um, this next question is for Greg. It's from. Salkeem Nifdrib. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. Sure. Even higher percentage likelihood that I mispronounced that one. Um, so it, it, it's not a stronger by science podcast episode with at least without at least one or two butchered names. No, it, New Year, very same us for sure. Um, okay, so the question is. What do you think about Brian Miner's theory on progress? Being able to lift more, being a result of hypertrophy rather than hypertrophy being a result of lifting heavier? So, so that's a good question. Um, like Brian Miner, he's a good guy. I do too. Not to be mistaken with Fort Miner, uh, I think that's a common point of confusion, uh, but both very, very cool. Um, so Brian wrote an article back in, I believe, January 2018 called Is Load Progression Necessary for Hypertrophy on the website MyoJournal? Um, and I assume that that is the, the source of this theory that Sal Kim is asking about. Uh, and so essentially Brian argues that, um, that essentially like progressive overload, people think about it backwards. It's less that training harder, going up in weight, doing more reps, etc., is what causes progress and more so that being able to go heavier, do more reps, etc., is reflective of the fact that progress has occurred. Um, and so like 
basically I agree with that. Uh, and I think that it kind of just depends where in the chicken and egg uh, scenario of, of progressive overload and muscle growth you're talking about. So essentially how this goes down is, you know, if you're untrained, you need an adequate stimulus to get bigger and stronger. And that doesn't have to be a particularly huge stimulus. Like you're not doing anything. You do something. Adaptations occur. So then you get bigger and stronger, and then you need a larger absolute stimulus in order to maintain a sufficient relative stimulus to get bigger and stronger yet. Then you do that, and you get bigger and stronger, and then you need a larger absolute stimulus to continue getting bigger and stronger. If you're keeping effort pretty similar the whole time, as you are getting bigger and stronger, loads drift up. And so you can, if you... You could come away with the idea of, you know, going up in weight and volume helps you get bigger and stronger, uh, or you can come away with the idea of you get bigger and stronger and that helps you go up in volume and weight. Both of those things are are kind of true, uh, depending what part of that cycle you're looking at. Um, what I will say just in general is I think that... I think that people have a lot of incorrect ideas about progressive overload, or at least, at minimum, a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about progressive overload, to the point that I don't even know that I like the term anymore, because I think that it causes more confusion than it helps actually clarify the concept you're talking about. So, not everyone, but when a lot of people talk about progressive overload, the only thing that comes to mind is just, oh, you need to do progressive overload, so just add more weight on the bar every session or every week or every month or whatever. Um, it could also include, like, you know, doing more reps, adding sets or whatever, making training more challenging. Um, but, like, the original definition of progressive overload is basically that very simplistic version of yeah, just every session as you're able, add more weight to the bar. Um, that's essentially what the term meant when Delorme coined it back in like the late 40s um, when he was doing research on untrained soldiers uh, during the World War II era. And so for the population he was working with, like that is a perfectly valid definition and perfectly, it's a comprehensive enough way of looking at it. For untrained lifters, adaptations do take place quite quickly. And so, you know, in order to maintain a large enough stimulus to keep them challenged and keep them improving, you do basically need to go up and wait virtually every training session or at least every week. Um, so that was like the context in which the coin was termed. Um, but I don't know that it's all that helpful of a concept when you're talking about more well-trained lifters. So... Essentially, if you're looking at progressive overload that way, then, you know, you're an intermediate lifter, you're an advanced lifter, progress is either slowed down or like you've hit a plateau. And if you take the view of progressive overload, meaning just going up in weight or volume, like causes continued adaptation, and that's the thing driving everything, you could very easily work yourself kind of into a hole where like maybe your training has gotten pretty challenging, you're having issues recovering from it, and then if you're like, well, the way I, I 
get things moving again is progressive overload and progressive overload means adding more weight or doing more volume that could could very easily tip yourself over into overreaching or overtraining if that's like the concept you're working with whereas if you take a perspective more similar to Brian's and it's it's less that going up in weight and volume causes growth and more that growth and and improved performance is permissive of increases in weight and volume then um you're you're not going to run into that same issue um and it i think is a more useful way of conceptualizing things because essentially you're you're focused on progress and your performance which is like act, what you want to 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 be focused on like you want to get bigger you want to get stronger rather than focusing on a proxy like if you're focused just on progressive overload you're focused on the proxy of how much weight is on the bar and how much volume am i doing and so you might have a tendency to optimize your training for the proxy the proxy being how much weight am i lifting how much volume am i doing and trying to improve that rather than staying focused on and is that actually getting me the results i want um so personally I, like I said, I'm not crazy about the term progressive overload just because I think it does cause a lot of confusions because some people have kind of a nuanced view of it and some people have a more simplistic view of it. I kind of like to term things. So this, this is something I've been meaning to write an article about for like four years and just haven't gotten around to it. But instead of the term progressive overload, I like to term things either uh, a subadaptive stimulus, an adaptive stimulus, or a maladaptive stimulus. And so essentially, the name of the game with any coaching is to make sure that the stimulus is appropriate. You want it to be a large enough stimulus and a stimulus of the correct sort to cause adaptations and specifically the type of adaptations you want. Uh, you don't want the stimulus to be too small to cause adaptations, and you don't want the stimulus to be so large that people can't uh, beneficially adapt to it. And so if you think about things in that way, it will necessarily accomplish what progressive overload does of, you know, as you get bigger and stronger, you need to train harder in an absolute sense, like going up in volume or going up in weight to keep the stimulus large enough to cause more adaptations, like for it to continue to be an adaptive stimulus. If you didn't do progressive overload, as your capacity improved, eventually what is now an adaptive stimulus would become a subadaptive stimulus. Um, but it keeps you from just focusing on going up in load and going up in volume for its own sake and potentially risking your training becoming large enough to be a maladaptive stimulus. Um, and so like that's personally how how I look at it. Um, and I think... I think that made sense and it will make more sense when I have time to actually like sit down and write an article about it and like really flesh this out. Um, but yeah, essentially I think I, I agree with Brian's perspective um, in, and how he personally looks at this. I do think it's a chicken and egg scenario where are you looking at the part of the cycle where you do have to increase stimulus to cause more adaptation? Are you looking at the part of the cycle where adaptation has occurred and therefore you can go up in, in weight and volume. Um, and I think that focusing on the latter part of that cycle is generally a more productive way to go about it and, and avoid some of the pitfalls of just, you know, 
maximizing load and volume for their own sake and focusing on proxies instead of outcomes. Um, and one thing I'll note, and I need to be careful of how I word this because I'm afraid it'll come across as salty and I don't anticipate it to come across as salty. Um, I'm more so like trying to back up this concept. So the question asks like, what do I think about Brian Miner's theory? And so that makes it sound like this is an idea that one person has. And maybe since there is a person espousing it, it's kind of a fringe minority view. Um, so with that, pretext like he wrote this article in 2018 i'm sure he had that idea floating around in his head before that i posted about this on facebook and reddit back in like 2016 um like literally this exact same concept um i had the idea from like reading some of mike tashir's stuff because it seems to be a pretty clear implication of using like auto regulation and rpe to progress load essentially as you get stronger and as your physical capacities improve, if you keep RPEs, the same load just kind of naturally progresses. Like it's the same concept. Mike T chimed in on Facebook and said like, yeah, this is how I look at it too. Um, And like, I'm sure that we aren't the only three people who have had this concept. So if you go back and read like really, really old school uh, accounts of the training process, like, you know, people like Arthur Saxon and Doug Hepburn, this kind of i this way of looking at it is kind of inherent to how they approach training as well um i kind of think i mean i kind of think this is how most good coaches look at it um essentially you're taught a very simplistic and stripped down and maybe not all that helpful version of progressive overload in like an undergrad exercise physiology class And then as you coach more and get more experience, you do develop a more nuanced idea of it. Um, And I think it kind of converges upon the ideas that Brian put forth in that article. Um, I've talked to Eric Helms about this as well. I think he views progressive overload pretty much the same as well. Um, So anyway... I'm not I'm not trying to say that Brian like stole my thunder or anything like that, because I know with a million percent certainty that I wasn't the person that came up with the idea either. I just want to make it clear that it's not like, you know, Brian is a lone prophet in the wilderness and is the only person who has this concept. It's not like a it's not like a, a minority thing that's kind of like fringe and you should thus be super skeptical of. I think it's a very reasonable way of conceptualizing progress that most coaches kind of converge on over time anyways. Um, so yeah, I'm a supporter of it and I think it's a good way to think about progress, um, more so than just like the, the super simplistic version of progressive overload that maybe you learned in undergrad. Very good. All right. That's a nice Q and a segment. We're going to move on now to a research roundup segment. And, you know, we, we committed to making sure that this show wasn't going to be five hours long. So I'm going to try to be very concise and brief with the research roundup here. Uh, two studies I found recently that I thought were pretty interesting. They're not necessarily related, but I, I just thought they were cool. The first one is called the effects of acute caffeine, theanine, and tyrosine supplementation on mental and physical performance in athletes. Now, last year I published an article 
on the website, strongerbyscience.com, about caffeine. And in that caffeine article, I mentioned that caffeine probably pairs pretty well with theanine and tyrosine, but there's not a lot of research looking directly at that specific combination. Um, certainly, I didn't come up with that. It's, it's something others have written about before, but unfortunately, there's not a lot of research specifically looking at all three of them together. So when I saw this title of this article, I was stoked. I was really, really excited. Um, and, and just to talk about the background a little bit. So tyrosine is an amino acid that's found in a lot of different protein sources. And it's a precursor to L-DOPA. So so the, the kind of pathway here is tyrosine to L-DOPA to dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter. And then some dopamine is converted to nor, uh, norepinephrine as well. The, the general effects we associate uh, with tyrosine would be related to energy, alertness, cognitive function, things like that. Now with theanine, and this is different from theocrine, so that's a really important distinction. Theanine is a non-dietary amino acid that's found in green tea and black tea mostly, uh, and some other things as well. And theanine has effects on the GABAergic and glutaminergic neurotransmitter pathways. And the effects we associate with this are more related to relaxation, but importantly, not sedation. So you, you get a relaxed sense from this, but you don't feel tired or sleepy. And so the idea is, theoretically, uh, tyrosine might potentiate some of the favorable effects of caffeine when it comes to especially things like alertness and cognitive uh, function and acuity. And then theanine might level out some of the relatively negative things we associate with caffeine. I think a lot of people who use caffeine regularly have had those days where you take a little too much and you feel anxious and jittery and just generally not good. Why are you smiling? Have I incriminated both of us here? No, I've heard that's a thing. That that has literally never happened to me. Oh, I, that's me all the time. Dude, the more caffeine I consume, the better I feel up to some limit that I haven't found yet. <laughs> that That is not my experience. But anyway, so I saw this title and I was like, yes, finally, I was really excited. Um, but as you're going to see, I'm a little bit annoyed with the study. I'm not going to lie. So um, they looked at 20 current or former or former male collegiate athletes with uh, with a mean age of 20.5. Uh, it was a placebo controlled uh, crossover trial. So uh, every participant did the uh, treatment condition, but also the placebo condition and basically served as their own control. Um, they completed a few different assessments related to mental and physical performance uh, before and after the provision of either the supplement or the placebo, as well as after two rounds of exercise. Now, going up to this point, I'm like, awesome, this is really cool. But uh, there was one thing about the study that really irked me. Uh, I want to be very clear. There's There are researchers on this paper that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. They do good work. I think this decision was most likely taken out of their hands, but somebody made this decision, which drives me crazy. They refused to disclose the dosage of the supplement used. Um, and I think they also neglected to provide an actual specific supplement name. And so like when I read that, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, that's really frustrating because... Can you imagine if it was a study? It's like, hey, we're looking at the uh, toxicity of Tylenol. It seems like it was fine. And you go, oh, oh, sick. Uh, 
I mean, how much did you give? That's we're not really willing to share that, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, it was a proprietary amount of Tylenol. <laughs> yeah, like that's just how could you even pretend that's helpful to anybody? Yeah, you know what I mean. Like dosage matters with this stuff. And so I was reading the paper and I was kind of annoyed because, again, I don't think the researchers willingly made that decision, but somebody did, which is frustrating. However, <laughs> this is one of the beauties of uh, of pre-registration. They pre-registered the trial and in the trial registration, they did have the dosing information. Uh, so according to the pre-registration, which should line up with the paper, it was 75 milligrams of caffeine, 75 milligrams of theanine and two grams of tyrosine. Now, the two grams of tyrosine, I like that. I like the one-to-one ratio between caffeine and theanine, but that caffeine dose is really low. So unfortunately, when I saw that, it really took the wind out of my sails in terms of my enthusiasm for this one. Um, Another thing is that the outcomes aren't super relevant uh, for what most people are, most of our listeners are interested in. So they they did... uh, the, the rounds of exercise they did had nine exercises and they, they just did them for 45 seconds and did as many reps as they could. And uh, the, the exercises were like battle ropes, other battle ropes, another battle ropes exercise, kettlebell swings, line jumps, toe touches, mountain climbers, BOSU squats, which I know Greg programs those all the time. Hell yeah. Uh, and burpees. So the performance outcomes really weren't super... Again, it was one of those things where I I saw the title and had such high hopes about it. And like I said, I respect a lot of the researchers on this paper, so I'm not like trying to bash them. But uh, this one just wasn't the paper for me. You know, it, it, I I don't like the dosing and I don't like the exercises. But in any case, uh, what they found was improved movement accuracy with a particular like reaction test or like task that they were doing. They didn't find improvements in physical performance or uh, the subjective assessments they did looking at energy, focus, concentration, alertness, fatigue, and motivation. But again, with that dosing, I really wouldn't expect a whole lot uh, specifically from the caffeine. So, you know, for me, the perfect design for this is using some traditional resistance training type tests and you have an ergogenic dose of caffeine with theanine and tyrosine, sensibly dosed, versus a caffeine only condition that would be fantastic i expect the the effect would be very small but uh but it i i, I still i mean every day with with my first caffeine dose of the day of which there are many uh i, I do have theanine and tyrosine it's a small effect it's mostly related to cognitive uh sharpness and just general alertness and wakefulness um but in any case i saw the title i was like hell yeah and then i read it and i was like ah this wasn't what i hoped so this is just my like in equals one experience. So take it or leave it very well may not be normative. And, uh, you know, I could just be placeboing myself. But m- my experience with uh, not so much theanine, uh, but tyrosine specifically, is that if I am well rested and I'm generally sleeping good, and I combine caffeine and tyrosine versus just caffeine, I can't tell a lick of difference. Um, But if I'm pretty worn down and sleep deprived, and I just use caffeine or use caffeine and tyrosine together, I do notice a considerable difference where adding the tyrosine into the mix does help me feel quite a bit better. Um, you know, maybe that's just because like with sleep deprivation, dopamine levels go down. 
Uh, maybe that's due to neural shit, or maybe it's just due to lack of raw materials to continue making dopamine, because you don't really have that much dopamine when you're asleep, so maybe that helps, like, replenish the raw materials pool. I don't know. I don't know how all of that works. I just know that my own experience with it is that tyrosine does does seem to give me a little more pep in my step when I'm sleep-deprived, but not so much when I'm well-rested and, like, not being a complete degenerate. Yeah. I haven't, I don't have as close of a personal relationship with sleep deprivation as you do. So I can't confirm or deny that, but, but I, I do, I, I like the theanine with, with caffeine. Cause like I said, I, I am a little bit prone to some of the jitteriness and the increased anxiousness. Um, but in any case, it's still an interesting supplementation strategy. There's still evidence there. Um, but unfortunately we know we need a lot more of it and, and ideally, uh, essentially with the design I mentioned. Like I'd like to see what they do above and beyond caffeine when caffeine is dosed at a higher higher dosage. Okay, the next study I saw, I'm going to be very brief about this one. Um, this is a long title. It was called High Compared with Moderate Protein Intake Reduces Adaptive Thermogenesis and Induces a Negative Energy Balance During Long-Term Weight Loss Maintenance in Participants with Prediabetes in the Post-Obese State. A Preview Study. And uh, so what they were looking at here, they had 38 participants. Um, they did uh, they did a weight loss diet, and this was looking at them 34 months after the weight loss. And they had them on these two different diets and looked at their, uh, they had them in a respiration chamber for 48 hours looking at a variety of different metabolic outcomes. The two diets, one was high protein, one was moderate protein. So the high protein diet was 25% protein by calories uh, or 25% of calories from protein, uh, and then 30% from fat, and the rest from uh, carbohydrate. The moderate protein group was 15% protein, 30% fat, and again, the rest from carbohydrate. So the results, the higher protein diet, when they were in the respiration chamber, had lower energy balance and higher uh, resting energy expenditure. And so uh, for, for that group, the resting energy expenditure was not different from their predicted resting energy expenditure. It was only about 48 calories lower than predicted. In the moderate protein group, it was about 119 calories uh, lower than predicted. So these findings, obviously, it's not a huge difference, but it's not totally negligible. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already knew that you should be eating a pretty high protein diet, whether you're actively losing weight or if you're in that post weight loss period. But the reason that this one kind of caught my eye, we did a study a while back, I think it was published in 2017, looking at a group of 15 physique athletes. And we're talking about competitive physique athletes who all eat high protein diets. I mean, that's that's the rule rather than the exception with physique athletes. And one of the things we found, it was a small sample, but we did find that the, the resting metabolic, uh, the, the changes in resting metabolic rate that we observed seemed to correlate with the, the protein intake that they were consuming after the competition. So basically the recovery of resting metabolic rates seemed to be correlated with that protein intake. Initially, I didn't look too far into it because um, I was like, hey, it's a small sample, correlations happen, um, but it's still interesting enough to report. And this is kind of the same type of thing where I'm leaning more and more as I see studies looking at different macronutrient combinations in the post-weight loss period, I'm leaning more and more toward really prioritizing protein and in some cases even increasing it beyond what it was in the diet, at least in the short term. Um, I, 
especially people who are hoping to maintain some degree of leanness. So, you know, I'm not really into the idea of after you compete, staying shredded for like the rest of your life or as long as you can until you crack. I think that's a really bad plan. But so like an application of this might be if you're someone who competes in a physique show uh, and maybe you have another one in six weeks. I, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone talk about this or write about it, but that's the worst thing in the world. So when you are, at least from my experience, prepping for shows is easy, uh, but when you are just trying to stay in the best shape of your life and not actually get better or worse for six weeks, it's so hard to motivate yourself to stay in that kind of shape. I mean, it's brutal. So some people take that approach where they're like, oh, well, we'll like reverse out of it and hit a show on the tail end or something like that, like increase calories. Maybe we show up a little bit fuller, but I think one of the benefits of that approach is just giving your mind something to focus on. So like, oh, hey, look, we're doing this this new reverse diet thing. It's a thing we're doing now rather than just like getting in shape and saying, okay, do the same thing for the next six weeks and try not to hate it because you're going to hate it in my experience. But I I do think there's something interesting about it. Um, And and, I mean, the the the, uh, mechanisms that the authors put forward are kind of the standard ones you see. So maybe it's the increased satiety, maybe it's the increased thermic of feeding, maybe some combination within those. Um, But it does seem to have some particular utility when it comes to the maintenance of weight loss, maybe particularly, particularly if it's like a short stretch of time where you're a physique athlete and you're really trying to hold on to it. Maybe you do a competition and you've got a photo shoot four weeks after or something like that. I do think there's something to this strategy. I don't expect that it's going to be a complete game changer. And obviously, you know, you're, you're going to be eating high protein anyway, if you're on a good weight loss diet and really getting shredded. But, you know, even for like general population, people who are like, okay, I'm out of this weight loss phase. Does that mean that my protein needs are kind of back to normal? I would say the evidence would indicate it's probably not a bad idea to keep them high. And you might even play around with a theoretical strategy of increasing them to try to successfully complement this uh, this weight maintenance. So when would protein intake come back down after that? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, the way I see it, maybe it's something that you lean on in this initial initial stage and kind of taper it down from there. So like, you know, when it comes to weight maintenance from a a pretty serious weight loss attempt, it's usually that initial window where you really want to manage it and successfully transition into maintenance mode. And again, so this, we're talking general population here. If you have some idea that you're going to get shredded for a competition and stay that way forever, I think that's a bad idea, period. Um, But for that type of person who's trying to actually maintain this weight loss for a long time, maybe you use it as a crutch to kind of successfully transition into that maintenance period. You leave the protein kind of elevated beyond what it really needs to be for, I don't know, a month or two and start tapering it down from there once they realize like, okay, I've got my feet underneath me. This has been a successful transition. We're maintaining and think like we've said many times before on the show, the things that really seem to correlate with good weight loss maintenance are continuing to track body weight, continuing to track your your intake, uh, and then also keeping your physical activity level high. So I could see this as being like, those three things are key. Like they have to be there in this initial transition phase. I would see this as like a fourth, 
like I said, just a little bit of a boost to give you a step in the right direction. I don't expect it's a huge effect. I mean, we talked about the calorie numbers there. That's nothing special. But but if every little bit counts in this particular, it's kind of a fragile time window where, where it's like, okay, are we going to successfully make this transition or not? And I could see it fitting in that particular time window. Um, and then if you're like, okay, I'd like to shift to a slightly more enjoyable macronutrient split, then you start tapering down. Again, this is totally theoretical based on, you know, two studies, one of which was extremely small. But but I, I do think it's, uh, we don't have that many tools for, for this type of thing, right? Like, so metabolic adaptation, everybody's like, how do you solve it? There's not a whole lot that we can really do with it. So if we find something like this that can facilitate that transition phase in this adaptive kind of post-diet state, it's probably a good thing. Makes sense to me. Okay. Has anyone considered pulling their metabolism back up by its own bootstraps? That's a good question. I think a lot of people just don't have the uh, the fortitude to do that, the toughness and the, the focus. Just aren't willing to take personal responsibility for it. Correct. That's a joke. We're joking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Greg, do you, I think you have a coach's corner plan for us, don't you? I do. Yeah. So um, New Year is upon us. Uh, this is around the time when a lot of people might consider starting to cut uh, either for spring break or summer. Um, fun fact, if you look at temp- temporal changes in weight over time, Generally, most people do a pretty good job uh, maintaining weight from like mid-January to November. Uh, This is in the U.S. with the way our holiday season works. Um, But then basically they gain several pounds during the Thanksgiving Christmas season and then just maintain weight moving forward and don't lose that weight. So, you know, basically it's New Year's time. A lot of people are trying to lose weight. Uh, A lot more people should probably be trying to lose weight. Um, so if, if that applies to you, let's talk about training, um, and some strategies you can use to, you know, make training on a deficit slightly less unpleasant. Because the thing is, you know, if you've been training for a while, you know, that training at maintenance and certainly in a surplus is a lot more fun than training in a deficit. Uh, it's fun to get stronger and your performance improve. If you're like a beginner or early intermediate lifter, like you can almost certainly continue to improve performance in a deficit, but at a slightly slower rate. But it's it's just less fun all around. Um, and I know that that has like foiled prior weight loss attempts for me, if I'm being completely honest, because uh, I'm a power lifter. I'm focused on performance. If performance starts dropping, um, that is psychologically tough for me um, just because like I like lifting heavy shit and I don't particularly want to start lifting lighter shit, you know? Um, so anyway, here's some strategies that one could use to maybe make this period uh, at least a little bit easier psychologically um, because ultimately with a cut, if you're you're trying to to possibly increase but realistically just maintain the amount of muscle you have and for that as long as you keep training things are probably going to be pretty fine um all of the research we have looking at people who are training in a deficit 
basically finds that until people are getting like super, super lean, they're able to maintain muscle mass just fine. Um, so, I mean, realistically, as long as, you, as you're still getting in the gym and training hard, things will be okay. And so really you need to be more focused on like, how can you train in a manner that you won't lose your motivation? Um, you know, if, if performance starts dropping. And so here, here are just a couple simple things you can do. One is, um, just do more body weight stuff as like core lifts in your program. So, you know, if you're mostly focused on squat bench deadlift, when you're cutting, maybe you could put a little bit more focus on exercises like dips and pull-ups, uh, simply because like one, if you don't put a lot of focus on them in your program, generally, you're probably going to be able to make some gains fairly quickly just as you get better at the movements and get used to them. Uh, and then two, as weight comes off the scale, you now weigh less and it's easier to get your body weight above the bar or to do dips with your body weight. Um, and so that can be the, you're kind of, the cut is working towards you rather than against you. It's less like you have, you know, less mass to, to control and handle heavy weight and more like now you have less mass that you're trying to move through space. Um, so a larger focus on body weight stuff and specifically thinking pull-ups and dips here for people who are stronger, maybe like inverted rows and push-ups for people who aren't quite as strong. Um, that can, that can be a good strategy. And then something else you can do, and, and this is what I have done previously to maintain motivation for longer during a cut is basically to include more variation in like the core lifts of your program. Um, and so, you know, basically if your training program revolves around squat bench deadlift and you're doing them week in, week out all the time, and you're already quite strong and quite skilled, maybe when you start cutting first couple of months go fine. And then you start losing a little bit of strength and that's demotivating something you can do to work around that. If you're not someone who just psychologically has to squat bench deadlift every week is you can just do something like three week waves with close variations of the main lifts. So for example, instead of benching uh, for three weeks, you could do close grip or you could do like a low incline press or you could do spoto press or any other number of close variations of the bench press. Same thing for the squat. If you traditionally squat low bar with a belt, you, you could maybe do three weeks of beltless squats or three weeks of high bar squats or three weeks of pause squats or three weeks of front squats. Uh, a lot of different options you could go for. If there are things you don't use super often in your training, same sort of thing could take place as as will occur with pull-ups and dips. For those three weeks, your performance probably improves week to week to week just as you build skill with exercises that you do a little bit less frequently. Then, you know, when you actually start getting quite good at them and might be about to hit a wall, you sub them back in for something else. Um, you, you, As long as they're close variations, you should still have enough motor skill that you can put sufficient stimulus on the muscles to maintain muscle mass. Um, so that shouldn't necessarily be a problem, but you're essentially just in a process of week to week to week performance is going up and that feels good. Your actual performance, like if you did a one rep max squat, it may still be where it was before, maybe slightly depressed, but like your week to week experience is performance is going up and that feels good. Um, 
If you're worried about getting rusty with your main lifts, you can just include them as things that you cycle in. So, you know, maybe for bench, you do three weeks of close grip, you do three weeks of low incline, then you do three weeks of comp style bench, and then you do three weeks of bench with chains, and then you do three weeks of spoto press, and then you do three weeks of comp style bench. You just, you know, include that as something that's like every third variation just to make sure you stay um, you know, somewhat in practice, or you could just do it as part of your warm up. where when you're warming up for any other bench variation, and by the way, this would apply to squat and deadlift as well, uh, you know, you just work up to a single at like 80, 85% on the core lifts. Um, that'll, that will keep the motor pattern reasonably fresh, should help it keep from getting rusty. I don't think you need to do that, but if that's something that you think would stress you out, you can keep the main lifts in your program in some way, shape, or form instead of you know, completely neglecting them for several months at a time. Um, And then I also think this can make things more fun at the end of a cut as well, because especially if your core lifts get a little rusty, they might be like artificially depressed a bit at the end of your cut. And so then when you transition back into maintenance or a slight surplus, you get pretty rapid strength gains on the core lifts you care about the most, just as you get back in practice. Uh, And that's fun as well. So basically, like, different people are wired differently. Um, I think that, I don't know, I I think that, like, more hypertrophy-focused people care less about performance, and as long as their physique looks good and maybe they can still get a pump, it matters a little bit less if performance is going down in the gym. But for strength athletes, performance going down on a cut just can be super demotivating. So using some of these strategies... Uh, you should like be able to improve absolute performance in body weight exercises, like you know, say number of reps you can do with body weight. Just as your body weight goes down, that's working in your favor. And by cycling in more lifts, your week to week, day to day performance is that oh, like my performance is improving. I can do more reps. I can do more weight week to week to week, uh, and that's fun. That feels good. Um, and you should still be able to keep inducing an adequate stimulus to maintain your muscle. And so ultimately it's accomplishing what you want it to. Um, so yeah, you don't have to do that, but those, those are some things I would generally recommend, especially if you've tried to cut before and you found yourself aborting it because, you know, you did lose motivation as performance started taking a hit. You can use some of these strategies. It may make the process a little bit psychologically easier for you. I really like that. Those are some good tips. I think a lot of people just kind of, they reserve themselves to the idea like, well, I'm going to cut. This is going to suck. I don't think a lot of people think about proactive strategies of like, how do we manage that? that that's really nice. I like those tips. So uh, to play us out, we've got two things. Uh, the first one's from me, the second from Greg. I'm going to be brief uh, with mine. So mine's a uh, a little, we're going to grab a, a piece of feedback out of the mailbag here. So somebody messaged Greg with this. Um, do you remember who sent this? Well, uh, I don't know if they want their name shared though. Cause yeah, like with the I, Q and a, it's implied, but I don't remember. Anyways. Yeah. Anyway, you know who you are and we appreciate it. Um, but basically uh, we talked several episodes back about a big meta analysis where they looked at uh recommendations pertaining to the intake of red meat and processed meat and their general conclusion was like eh you can kind of just keep doing what you're doing right and it it caused a bit of a stir because red meat and processed meat tend to be very much vilified 
uh, in the nutrition world. So um, a lot of people were annoyed by the conclusions of the paper. As we talked about in our segment, if you look deeper into the paper, really what they said was like, my interpretation of their work was like, yeah, it's probably a good idea to keep your your intake of processed meats and fatty red meats, you know, within the low to moderate range. But realistically, people kind of hate doing it. And if that's the only diet change you're making, it's probably not going to completely revolutionize your health. So like, I think a lot of people saw the headlines and thought, wow, these guys just took a really irresponsible shot at everything we know about nutrition. And I really don't think their paper lived up to that hype um, in a good way, actually. <laughs> this is a case where you don't want to live up to that hype. Um, but in any case, so someone sent us an article about uh, the, the journal recently issued a correction. Um, in the original paper, there was a big long list of conflicts of interest. And we, we noted in the show, it even went so far as like, how often do you eat red meat and stuff like that. Um, but the... Uh, yeah, it, was, it was a thorough conflict of interest reporting section. Correct. Yeah. Which, which I believe is kind of part of this grade approach that they took. Um, but in any case, uh, the journal issued a correction that the lead author failed to disclose. I think it was one uh, funding source that they should have disclosed. I think it was one, maybe two. It was one. Yeah. yeah. One of them was like from before the period that they were supposed to report. They Correct. had like a 36-month period. Yeah. But in any case, so there, there have been some articles saying like, well, the whole paper is, you know, you got to completely ignore it and throw it out because of this. And so the the person that sent us a question was basically like, what's your take on this? And personally, I'm not, I'm not that, uh, my opinion on the conclusions of the paper hasn't really changed much. Um you know, the the original paper itself, like I said, it was mostly just saying like, hey, all these governing bodies have put out these recommendations. We believe that they kind of lacked procedural rigor in terms of establishing those guidelines. They might be overstating the magnitude of the effect if we view these dietary changes in a vacuum, like in isolation. And these previous guidelines have failed to consider basically how much people are going to hate implementing this change if they're already a, a consumer of these products. So it wasn't quite as strong a conclusion uh, as people have kind of made it out to be. But one, one of the reasons I'm not super concerned about like, oh, we found this other conflict of interest that wasn't reported. So it's important to, to recognize that this was a, a systematic review that was pre-registered. Okay, so what that means two things. First of all, the methods were registered ahead of time. And second of all, given that it's a systematic review and meta-analysis, the data aren't coming from folders in their lab, yeah, right? Like yeah. th- these data are publicly available, published data. The reason that's important is because you can't, if it were a completely original research study that wasn't pre-registered, you could think like, oh, you know, this person, because of their conflicts, was probably selectively reporting outcomes, not reporting the stuff that didn't fit their narrative. Maybe some special outliers got thrown out to make the picture a little clearer for them. You could you could have concerns about some of these things, but the fact that it's a meta-analysis means there the analysis has to be perfectly capable of being replicated. You know, we all have access to all of the data, you know, everyone listening to this. So you can't really be super concerned that they did something weird fudging numbers because it can all be replicated. And the fact that they pre-registered it, if there was a bias, which I 
as I'm going to cover in a minute, I don't think they're, I, I think it's pretty unlikely. But if there was, basically the biggest uh, biggest ramification it could have on this type of uh, of research endeavor would be that before they started it, they basically stacked the deck and took an approach that they thought would favor a particular finding. I'm really not that concerned about this conflict of interest in that context. Um, another thing is that the the funding that was not disclosed, which has now been uh, corrected to disclose. This was the part that that floored me that they made such a big deal about this. Yeah, so so it was funded, and this is my understanding of just looking at a few articles on it. If, if I'm off base here, please do reach out. Let us know if we're mischaracterizing the scenario in any way. But uh, <laughs> this is a snarky joke. Like most people that report on health science articles, I haven't done a significant amount of digging. Um, <laughs> it's just insane. But anyway, <laughs> that, that's a different thing. So it was the Texas A&M AgriLife Research. That was this funding mechanism that, that he had to report. And so the idea is that this AgriLife Research thing is affiliated with Texas A&M University. It's like a university-directed program that receives partial funding from the beef industry. So the, like, the narrative, if you want to take a really uh, alarmist interpretation, is, oh, this author is totally in the pocket of the big beef industry. But if you go to the website for this Texas A&M AgriLife Research, if you go to their webpage, you see pictures of like fruits and vegetables and cotton fields and wheat and corn. Like It, it does seem to be like a pretty general big fund for agricultural agriculture related research it's not like you you go to the homepage and it's just like nine kinds of steaks and it's just pure beef i mean so of course they're going to receive funding from beef they're going to receive funding which from, honestly seems slightly off brand for texas a&m i know i i think uh it's either texas a&m or texas tech has like a highly ranked meat tasting club what yeah where like it's competitive meat tasting where they like taste beef and like I, I don't really understand how it works. Someone from Texas told me about it. I, I, I Was trust. it Jake? Yes. <laughs> now, now I see why he's trying to get back there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so in any case, like it, it doesn't look nearly as bad as some of the initial gut reactions would be. It, it, it's possible. Like, I don't know the ins and outs of this funding thing. Maybe there was like a sub grant from this uh, funding mechanism that was specifically like sponsored by the beef industry um in which case yeah you probably ought to report that but in any case like the idea that this guy is like paying his home mortgage based on his affiliations with beef it's just it's just off base and here's something i found that's funny um if you wanted to be like ah this this guy this the the lead author his name is johnston this idea that he's just out there as a mercenary for the food industry promoting fat and sugar because they, they did talk in the article about his sugar work as well being like too complementary to sugar or too linked to sugar backed uh, funding sources. So this is a paper where he was the senior author like senior author has sway on a paper. He was the last author listed. It's called The Influence of Unhealthy Food and Beverage Marketing on Children's Dietary Intake and Preference, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Randomized Trials. It was in 2016. Um, He was, again, the senior author. And these are two quotes from the paper. 
Marketing of foods and beverages high in fat, sugar, and salt are suggested to contribute to poor dietary behaviors in children and diet-related diseases later in life. Another quote from the paper, unhealthy food and beverage marketing increased dietary intake and influenced dietary preference in children during or shortly after exposure to advertisements. This does not sound like somebody who's willing to sell his soul for the big food industry. I mean, it was like right off the bat, fat, sugar, salt, disease, bad marketing, shame on you. Like, I I just don't see this being a particularly compelling narrative that, that this paper was like shady. I mean, maybe that was when he was in the pocket of big anti-marketing. Maybe. Yeah. So that's my take on it. I I really do think this is the type of thing. I mean, these new, like people in this area of research, they get grants all over the place because that's how it works. Like they're just getting grant after grant after grant. We're asking him to kind of know exactly how much beef money goes into this agriculture fund from which he got a grant. I just think it's a, a whole bunch of whole bunch of noise, not really that compelling. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you said, which I, I thought was rather apt when we were discussing this a few days ago, was uh, yeah, the the people who actually gave the grant was the Texas Tech AgriLife Research people. Uh, you know, th- that is a a grant agency associated with a university giving out money. That would be like, in, and this is the example you gave, like UNC gets a lot of funding from like Big Pharma. And so it would be like getting a departmental grant to study like, I don't know, whatever the fuck it is, doesn't really matter. And then people saying like, well, UNC gets a lot of money from GlaxoSmithKline, therefore like you you are necessarily promoting Big Pharma. Right. Like, the added layer of it going through the university before it, goes out to the researcher i think i think makes a considerable difference here yeah and like i said it's possible that it was a specific sub grant that was beef focused or something like that but but that still is passing through an entity that apparently is on the up and up and directly associated by name with the university yeah yeah so i i just don't see this as being nearly as ominous as as it would look at first glance and i would say honestly the most important thing is it's a pre-registered meta-analysis. Like, I, I don't know where you think the thumb is on the scale that's skewing this thing. Any, I mean, it's pretty transparent. Yeah, I mean, you it, if, if you want to say something about it, like, see if you think the inclusion criteria for studies was, was too lax or whatnot. Like, if this is an area of research you specialize in and you know that, like, oh, looking at these inclusion criteria... This one inclusion or exclusion criteria is somewhat sketchy. If they wouldn't have included that, they would have included these five other studies in this meta-analysis that would paint a very different overall picture. Like, that would be an incredibly legitimate critique. Sure. And I don't follow this area of research closely enough to know if that is a thing or not. Um, but that that is... That is what you would want to critique if you're critiquing a pre-registered meta-analysis. That or they fuck their stats up. Right. Which, yeah. like, which, like you said, you can pull up these papers, extract the data, and recreate the meta. Um, so, like, if if that was the problem, people who are freaking out about the funding source, I'm sure they've already tried to do that. Like, that's yeah. that, that would be the first place I'd go if I was trying to attack a meta. And second place I'd go is inclusion criteria. And so, when... 
when people aren't actually critiquing the science that was done and just jump straight to funding source, especially like you said, in a meta-analysis, not a prospective study, then it feels to me like they're grasping at straws. Yeah, and and there were some some criticisms like we talked about the first time with this paper where people said, I think these inclusion criteria weren't very good. Uh, I think, this is me quoting these hypothetical people, people thought that the inclusion criteria weren't great. Um, People also thought that the grade approach that they took is not super appropriate for this type of literature because it, it does basically say, like, if you're not an RCT you're not that you're, you're, it's low quality evidence. Right. And so for this body of literature, you knew going into it. Yeah. A lot of the stuff is going to be called low quality. So th- those are, those are valid uh, complaints, but what, I, what were the issues with inclusion criteria? If you remember? It, well, I mean, so what happened was everyone who sells a, a, you know, a super plant-based book or the people who wrote these guidelines that he's saying are a little bit too, uh, too enthusiastic they all kind of went at it and said like, well, will this inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria prevented you from including this paper, which we think is a really good paper. It was that kind of stuff. So that's one of the reasons why. When so I, it wasn't systematic critique. It was more just you didn't include one or two papers that I personally like. I mean, there were people uh, who, who were like, oh, this thing is a ma- is a mess. It's a disaster. And it's the people who really like advocating for you know i mean this is stuff we see with all sorts of papers right like there's two camps and they're going to go through it and say all the inclusion exclusion criteria are terrible um but it's it's people who are very transparently biased accusing other people of bias correct but i mean the thing is this is not an area of literature i care that much about which is why i didn't like dive in and say oh no here's what the the criteria should be or shouldn't be like my take on it, which again remains unchanged, is like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a safe bet to like keep your processed and fatty red meat intake within like low to moderate ranges. Um, this paper acknowledged that most people don't want to do that, which seems like, like a safe bet. So, like, yeah, I think it's generally advisable, but I mean, if that's the only, if you have a generally trash diet, and your main thing that you do is I went from a very highly processed meat to a slightly less processed meat with similar macronutrient composition. Like that's probably not going to affect your long-term health outcomes that much. Like I, I just, I, I think the main premise of the paper is like, eh, it's probably a good idea, but most people don't want to do it. If you do it, they even mentioned in the paper, like, yeah, there's probably some potential upside there, which I, I think is true. Yeah. Like if you, if your main goal is to live as long as humanly possible with the mo- the longest health span. Yeah. Don't eat a ton of fatty red meat and I'd say limit your your processed meat intake as much as you much as you're willing to do. Yeah. Like and I, I don't think this paper really changed that much. So th- that's one of the reasons like my take on the paper was never like, oh wow, you know, the tables have turned. Now we should all be eating a ton of processed meat. That's why it's like, does this change your interpretation of the paper? Nah, like y- you probably ought to. Like if you want to have a really nice, super healthy diet, like eat a bunch of plants, enough protein, and you're going to be good. I agree. All right. So, uh, but I, I do want to mention, uh, we really appreciate the listener sending that question. It was an interesting uh, little uh, 
series of articles reading through and trying to figure out what was going on there. Um, I, I still think, you know, one of the things I said uh, back in the day, this kind of brings it full circle. Uh, David Katz has a, a, a phrase he uses a lot with nutrition, which is like, yeah, we don't have all the answers, but his phrase is like, let's use what we know. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I do think it like, if you're going to tell me, Hey, Eric, I'm going to replace a lot of my processed meat intake with fibrous vegetables. That's a good move. Yeah. If anyone tells you that's not a good move, that's insane. But, uh, the, the reason it comes full circle is cats very, is very, he advocates a lot of plant-based diet stuff and was actually one of the people interviewed in game changers. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we are full circle. Um, all right. Now, Greg, on a lighter note, let's talk some cooking tips to play us out. Yeah, so uh, last thing I talked about was how to make it maybe slightly easier to cut. Now let's talk about how to make it much, much harder to cut. Uh, and that is, I would recommend that you make some homemade caramels or caramels, depending on how you pronounce that. Um so we did a holiday gift exchange. I made some caramels or car. I, I don't know how to say that. Let's operationally define it. Well, um, so I, I refer to like if you're using it as an ingredient in something else, I say caramel. But then I call like the individual candies caramels or caramels. I'm just going to say caramel because that rolls off the tongue better. I it think. does. Yeah. Anyway, uh, made some some caramels for a holiday gift exchange. A uh, little, little dirty Santa action. Uh, they were very well received. And I must say they were absolutely delicious. Um, chocolate, very passe. I think it's played out. Chocolate's time is over. The age of chocolate is over. The age of caramel is upon us. Um, and it's not that long until Valentine's Day. So if you want to impress your significant other, uh, maybe make them some homemade caramels. That will, uh, you know, get the evening started off right, maybe. Anyway, so here's how you make homemade caramels. And, and I'll also say, like, I love caramel. I, I prefer it to chocolate. It's it's. I don't have a big sweet tooth, but, like, caramel is definitely preferable to chocolate for me. Uh, like I love Twix growing up, love uh, hundred grand bars. Like that's, I think caramel's good stuff. And this homemade caramel is a trillion times better than anything you would get, uh, like prepackaged in the candy aisle. So it's true. So I, I had these, um, and I don't know. It almost felt like the prepackaged stuff you get had some kind of like structural agent to give it body that had like use cornstarch as a binder that had like no flavor to it whatsoever so it felt it almost felt like the flavor is diluted and the Mm -hmm. texture is far too hard in the store-bought stuff this was a totally different caramel experience yeah so uh here's how you make caramels uh there will be a video linked in the show notes this is what i used as my guide it was from america's test kitchen uh short video about five minutes pretty easy to follow But here's how you go about making caramel. You get two pots. Uh, One of them is going to have heavy cream and butter in it. And the other pot is going to have uh, sugar, uh, light corn syrup, or any any type of high glucose syrup. Um, So I think like tapioca syrup would work as well. Uh, And possibly even like agave nectar. Um, 
but one with sugar, light corn syrup, or some sort of high glucose syrup, and just a little water to dissolve it all. Uh, you're going to start by bringing the cream and butter up to a light simmer and uh, then infusing with vanilla. So I just used like vanilla extract. The video shows like the person used like an actual fresh vanilla bean. Vanilla beans are fucking expensive. It's like 20 bucks per vanilla bean, uh, at least at the store I go to. And so like I'll do that for special occasions. I didn't necessarily want to spend 20 bucks on a tray of caramels. Um, so I just went with vanilla extract. Still turned out well. Um, and so you're going to bring that up to a simmer. If you're using extract, you'll put the vanilla in at the end because you don't want all of that flavor to evaporate. Uh, and then basically you just want to keep that mixture warm so that it doesn't shock the syrup too much when you add it in. Then in the other pot with the sugar, the high glucose syrup, and the water, you're going to put that over like medium, medium high heat uh, and don't touch it to start with. Um, let everything dissolve. Let all of the water boil off. You don't want to touch it because if it gets all agitated, uh, the sugars can recrystallize and then you just have a mess. So you want it all to, to be able to melt into like a, a homogeneous liquid. Um, you'll boil, you'll boil all of the water off. You want to have a candy thermometer in on the action so you can monitor temperature because temperature control is crucial for this recipe. For a lot of things, temperature may not matter a ton, but when you're trying to make some sort of sugar candy, temperature, temperature control is the entire name of the game. Um, so as it's coming up to temp, it's going to pause at like two. 210, 212 Fahrenheit or like 100 Celsius for a while uh, until all of the water boils off. Once the water's gone, uh, it will resume heating up. And you want to get it up to somewhere in the neighborhood of 340 to 350 Fahrenheit, which is 171 to 177 Celsius. Um, and you can either do this by temperature or by color. For this first part, I'd actually recommend doing it by color. Um, you want to have the thermometer in to know when the temp is getting close. But basically, if you let like the the sugar syrup will change from clear to like kind of yellowish, amberish to kind of more like deeper and darker red. Um, and basically, the further you go, the the more and more intense the flavor will get and the more bitter it will get. That's one of the things I like about homemade caramel. Um, like store-bought stuff, it's one note. It's only sweet. It's sweet and kind of caramely, but it's one note and it's boring. When you make homemade caramel, it's going to have some bitter notes from like the actually like burnt and roasted sugar. It gives a really nice flavor contrast. Um, and basically, if you get it up to like 340 or 171 Celsius, it's not going to have much bitterness and it's going to be a lighter color. If you let it get darker, it's going to have a more intense flavor, a little more bitterness, and like a darker color. Um, you don't want to let it get above 350 or 177. I believe sugar starts burning at like 352 or 178. So like if you get up to 350, you're you, you have to watch it really, really closely. Because going from perfectly roasted intense caramel to burnt sugar is a very, very fine line. And as you get closer, like once you get up to like 330, I would recommend, or 330 slash like 165 Celsius, I'd recommend turning the temperature down to like low, medium low, so that like the final 10 degrees Fahrenheit 
comes up at a much slower rate so you have more control over it. So basically, get that to the to the color and temperature you want it, and then you want to add in the cream and butter mixture back into the very hot sugar syrup. Um, be incredibly careful. So, like, the sugar syrup is it's 350, and it's a liquid, so it's going to have a very, very high specific heat and transfer heat incredibly well. Um, and so... You want to just add a little bit of the cream and butter mixture at a time uh, because it's going to instantly like the a lot of the water is going to instantly vaporize into steam and that steam will be 350 degrees like water can only get up to 212 or 100 Celsius if you're near sea level but steam can be fucking hot like it, it's it's steam all the way up to like plasma temperature and 350 degree steam is not pleasant. So you want to add just a little bit of the cream and butter mixture, let it bubble, let it steam, then stir it in, then add a little bit more and do it in like multiple additions. Um, and you want to make sure that the sugar mixture is in a big enough pot that as it bubbles up, it's not going to run over. Um, so anyway, once you get that integrated, you want to put it back on the stove and get it cooking again. Um, so now you have a caramel sauce. And to turn it into caramels that you can then cut and eat as a candy, you need to get that mixture of the, the sugar and the cream and the butter and the vanilla up to about 245 to 250 degrees Fahrenheit or about 118 to 121 Celsius. Uh, closer to 245 and it's going to have a softer texture closer to 250 and it's going to be a little bit harder if you just get it up to 245 you may run into issues if you try to keep them at room temperature they're still going to try to flow a little bit so you're going to need to keep that in the fridge for sure 250 it should be a little bit safer at room temperature um but you know that's just going to dictate the texture you're working with but 245 to 250 will give you the texture and the chew that you would expect from a caramel candy um and then once you reach that you pull it off the heat, you pour it into a pan lined with parchment paper uh, and sprayed with cooking spray so it doesn't stick too bad. Let it cool a little bit at room temp. Once it's getting close to room temp, pop it in the fridge. After a couple hours in the fridge, it should be firmed up and you can go ahead and cut it and eat it. Might want to top it with sea salt. I'd highly recommend you do so. And I got to tell you, Trex just verified this for you. You can ask any of our friends. They're delicious. They're so good. It is dangerous uh, of of the various things one could do in the kitchen. I would say like deep frying things in really hot oil is probably the most dangerous thing. Uh, I mean, it's not like crazy dangerous, but like if you spill hot oil, you're in a world of hurt. You get a grease fire going. You're fucked. Um, so, you know, that that's kind of it's dangerous if you, if you don't know what you're doing. Making caramels isn't like that. But it is, uh, you know, it's, it's more dangerous than most things one would do in the kitchen. So you need to be careful with it. But as long as you watch out for that steam and make sure you don't spill it, uh, you'll be fine. And do, do not try the caramel until it's cooled all the way down. Like, it'll look like, once it stops steaming, like once all of the water's gone, um, it'll look like it's not that hot. Because, you know, if if like smoke or steam isn't rising off of stuff you just automatically make the connection of like, oh, this can't be that hot. But it's fucking hot. 
And like I said, it's a liquid. It's going to transfer heat incredibly well. It's easy to burn yourself. So just be careful if you do this um, and you should be fine. A couple variations you can do with this is one, uh, if you want to make caramel syrup instead of making caramel candies, you follow the first part of the process exactly the same. You get milk and butter, you get vanilla, you get the, the sugar syrup, sugar and water, you bring that up to 340, 350, get it to the level of caramelization you want. Uh, you add the, the cream and butter into the sugar, but then you just don't cook it after that. You get it well integrated, you stir it up well, you let it cool. Uh, you aren't driving water off and you're not changing the, the structure of it again by heating it back up. So it's going to have more water in it. It's going to behave as a syrup. And that is a delightful ice cream topping. Uh, that was my first introduction to caramel making. I actually made some some caramel syrup for ice cream last year. It was very good. Um, so I'd strongly recommend trying that as well if you like ice cream. Uh, and another thing you can do is during the second cook, like once you integrate the butter and cream into the sugar and you're bringing it up to temp, you can blow by the the 245, 250 that you would to make caramel candies and get it up to somewhere in the neighborhood of 270 to 300 Fahrenheit, which is like 132 to 149 Celsius. And you can basically make like a, like a caramel nougat or hard candy. Um, like 270 would be more nougaty, like 270 slash 132 would be more nougaty. Uh, 300 slash 149 would be more hard candy. Like if you do the hard candy, like it's going to be delicious and it's going to take a long time to dissolve in your mouth. It's kind of like a, kind of like a jawbreaker. Like you're going to be working on each one for like five minutes before it dissolves and it'll be really good. Um, if you go that route though, again, Temperature is very important. Get it up to 300 slash 149 Celsius. It's going to form a nice hard candy and be nice. If you get it up to 302 or 150 degrees Celsius, then it's going to be nasty because the smoke point of butter is 302 or 150. Uh, and if you get butter above its smoke point, um, it's just going to impart even more of a bitter flavor and might be unpleasant. Um, so temperature control is really important there. But if you go this route, if you make caramels, which I'd strongly recommend you do so, um, just go with like the basic candy version first. Um, it's really, really good. I've talked about this too long, but my God, they're delicious. And I love caramel. They're very good. Um, one of these days, have you talked about sourdough on the show yet? So I'm going to. Okay. Yeah, I was going to um, say one of these days we have to, because it sounds like you perfected your recipe. Dude, you need to try a slice when we go back down. I will. So, yeah, I, I've I, I've been getting more into baking. And once I felt like I had a really good handle on, like, commercially yeasted doughs, um, I've been getting more into sourdough. I've tried it before, and my prior experiences didn't go well. Um, this time around, it's going quite well. I've made quite a few really good loaves. The issue I had is I really, really like like an intense sour sourdough flavor. Um, and the loaves coming out before tasted good, but like pretty mild. I finally got the sourness on point. Um, since your starter is kind of a living substance and not as predictable as commercial yeast, I want to get in like 
three straight really good loaves before I feel like I've mastered it enough to talk about it on the podcast. Um, but that's coming one of these days. Definitely. Awesome. Well, that does it for the first episode of season two of the podcast. We are going to be back in two weeks. So little trick for everybody. If you listen to half this week and half the next week, then you'll be ready to go when the next episode's out. Well, if they're listening to this recommendation, they've already made it all the way through. That's a very good point, Greg. <laughs> That's an excellent point. Just for future reference. No, I think a lot of people probably listen to the last 30 seconds and then they go back. That's a normal way to listen to a podcast. I think that's how most people read books, too. Yeah, you don't want any surprises. So Yeah, that's how people should watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> just, to, just to realize the whole thing's a fucking waste of time. I was going to say, that would not be good for the show. I, I saw an analysis, or like, like uh, I guess an expression, um, talking about, like, basically a destination can be so bad that it invalidates the journey. And I've never... <laughs> seen a description of the last season of game of thrones that apt and on the nose you know i saw season one of a show called money heist and i thought it, it the whole thing was like really enjoyable and the end was so bad but i was like <laughs> you know what i had a good time for about 98 percent of that so I, I i felt differently i was like oh that was a wild ride that took me to a very bad place but uh, okay that does it for this week's episode uh, as always thank you for listening and we will see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.